When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello to all of you wonderful Unshaken Saints out there. I'm Jared Halverson, and I'm excited to dive into the second half of our discussion of Joseph in Egypt. Uh, last week we talked a little bit about Broadway and Hollywood, and uh, whether it's Joseph King of Dreams or Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and we figured we'd stick with Genesis since the book is always better than the movie, right? Well, I did want to at least pay some homage to the movie version, uh, that animated story of, of Joseph, uh, because of something that blessed me as I was preparing myself for, uh, for this lesson. Each week as I get ready to sit down to film, I spend a ton of time in scripture, uh, as you can probably guess, uh, reviewing things to try to get everything back into my mind and heart and checking oh, commentaries and alternate Bible translations and you name it. Beyond that, to get into the more spiritual zone, uh, I'll usually come and, and roll up my sleeves to remind myself that I've got work to do and take off my shoes to remind myself that I'm on holy ground with you and with the scriptures, and then kneel down and pray and ask Heavenly Father usually for two things. Uh, one is to purify motive on my part so that all glory goes to God. My wife used to joke that pride is a lot like bad breath. Somebody might have wonderful things to say, but man, it stinks as it comes out of their mouth. And I don't want that. And so I pray that these lessons may may redound to the glory of God, the giver of every good gift and, and the source of all of this incredible scriptural truth. And then the second thing I always ask for is for your sake, that these efforts on my part might be consecrated, that they could be for the welfare of your soul. Uh, Nephi's beautiful phrase from the end of 2 Nephi 32. I really do pray that these lessons will be a blessing to you and will glorify our Father in heaven and our Savior Jesus Christ and as I was doing all that today, I just felt one added nudge, and that was to listen to one of my favorite songs. Music to me is, is such a powerful uh, invitation to the Holy Ghost. And there's a song in Joseph, King of Dreams, uh, Hollywood as it might be, uh, where Joseph is in prison and he sings a song called Better Than I. As I was listening to it, I realized that the voice in the movie is none other than Dallin Vale Bayless, who's a Latter-day Saint. Uh, with plenty of Hollywood and Broadway uh, experience himself. He's always been one of my favorite singers. I don't know why it took me so long to realize that is his voice. Uh, beautiful, beautiful um, message in this song about a man who's hit rock bottom in some ways and come to trust the rock that he's resting upon. There's Joseph in prison, like we studied last week. And in this beautiful song, he just expresses his faith in God that God knows what he's doing, and that God knows better than Joseph does where he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to do and, and what his future still holds. Uh, it, that's important, and it was helpful to me to get into the spirit of today's half of Joseph's experience. Because last week was on faith. This week is on forgiveness. As he reconciles with his brothers, as he, they come to know who he is, and he reveals himself to them, and 
and forgives them for all the heartache that they've caused, the betrayal, the abandonment. You want to talk about a huge heart? There's Joseph for you. But it struck me the connection between faith and forgiveness. And that song helped put it all in perspective for me because, it, it, okay, this is one of my favorite verses of scripture that always gets taken out of context. Sometimes you can get away with that and it's just fine because the, a cherry-picked verse can sometimes stand alone. And here's one that's, that can do it. It's, it's when the apostles say to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. It's a beautiful phrase. And even if you have no idea what's going on in the story, that verse can stand alone. As we all probably feel, more often than not, a desire that God will increase our faith. Well, it's even better in context. Because in context, Jesus has just taught the apostles about forgiveness. Peter, I believe, had asked, uh, how many times do we have to forgive? You remember the seven times 70? Uh, he was kind of thinking, seven's probably a lot. And when the Lord bumps it up a few, uh, a few notches and goes, yeah, lose count, okay? I'm not talking 490. Uh, I'm just multiply your mercy, uh, expand your forgiveness until there's no end to it. And it's then the, that the apostles say, then when they realize that, whoa, I have to be that forgiving, it's then that they say, Lord, increase our faith. That's amazing context. They are realizing that for greater forgiveness, what we need is greater faith. Because often, well, I'll put it this way. Sometimes we fail to forgive out of our own personal weakness. We're angry or we're bitter. or We just can't get over it. And I get that. It can be really hard, especially when there's major trauma caused, like it would have been for Joseph in Egypt. But I think sometimes Satan gets us to be unforgiving, not by playing to our weaknesses, but by playing to our strengths, namely our sense of justice. And if I just keep turning cheeks, they're never going to learn. So, no, I need to hold them accountable to this. And there is a space for that. Uh, there are boundaries. We don't want to become codependent. Uh, but there's something, well, the way the Lord says it in the Doctrine and Covenants, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive. But of you it is required to forgive all men. You ought to say within your heart, let God judge between me and thee and reward thee according to thy deeds. That's such powerful counsel. It's leaving it in the Lord's hands, in his with his judgment, which can be completely trustworthy as opposed to ours, where we don't completely understand all the sides to the story. And so by trusting God, by having greater faith in him, then I'll know, I know he'll take care of justice. He's justice personified. And if the perpetrator deserves justice, God will make sure they receive it. Meanwhile, if the victim, me in this case, Joseph in this case, if they deserve mercy, then God will take care of that too. All will be well. Everything will be okay. I just need to trust that God will handle it. And for that, I need faith. So if you're struggling with forgiveness, then that's probably the right prayer to offer. Lord, increase my faith. Faith in thee so I have the power to forgive. And that is Joseph of Egypt. Last week we saw his faith. God knows better than I. This week we'll see his forgiveness that grows out of that faith. And it is beautiful. Now to dive in, start in chapter 42, verse 1. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do you look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there's corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. 
See, the way we ended last week was Joseph starting to sell grain. And Jacob catches wind of this, that Egypt really seems to be the storehouse here. And so let's go. I love the way he says it to his boys. What are you doing looking around at each other? Get up and go do something. Solve the problem. Okay. Sounds like a good dad. And I think sometimes that's us just kind of sitting there, long faces, looking at each other going, I don't know. What are you going to do? What, are you, what should we do? I don't know. Uh, there's something to that get up and make a difference. Remember Captain Moroni when he writes that letter to Pahoran and he asks, do you really think that, that God's going to preserve us if we sit around doing nothing? His, his language is beautiful. If we don't make use of the means that God has provided. Now, I know I'm speaking to the choir here because here you are with, with me studying scripture. But I worry sometimes about people whose faith has grown weak when they are not making use of the means where they are feeling spiritually starved. Oh, just famished for the word of God. And they're surrounded by it, but just not taking part. So quit looking around. Uh, don't sit there and die. <laughs> Get up, live, and make use of the means. Exactly as all of you were doing. Well, verse 3, Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. Ten? Well, he had twelve sons. Now, one's already in Egypt, though nobody knows it. What about the twelfth then? He says, Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren. For he said, lest peradventure mischief befall him. Now, is this just an overprotective dad? Maybe. And I couldn't blame him for that, considering that he's already lost Joseph. But I wonder, too, is this is Benjamin. This is son at the right hand. Remember, he renamed him that after the passing of Rachel in childbirth. And so part of me is if, jo if, if Benjamin is meant to take Rachel's place at, at the right hand of, of Jacob's heart, then I think he's doing the same thing for, for Joseph's place. With Joseph gone, that firstborn son of my first loved wife, I can't let anything happen to Benjamin. Not that son of my right hand, that last oh, memory, that last evidence of Rachel and her place in my life. So he can't go under no conditions. And I love the phrase, lest peradventure mischief befall him. I think that's the concern of every parent and our heavenly parents, as far as we are concerned, as we're journeying through oh, our Egyptian mortality, will mischief befall us to the point that we, we fall out of the way. Now, verse 5, the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came. For the famine was in the land of Canaan, and Joseph was the governor over the land. He it was that sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth, just as Joseph's dreams had predicted. In fact, by now, it seems that those were even more prophetic than, than original, originally thought. Because yes, they're bowing before him, but can you see why the sheaves would be pretty good imagery? Because right now, they, their sheaves are withered and dry and, and nothing. And here they are bowing before a man with the most abundant sheaf in all the land. Uh, Joseph of Egypt, who is in control of, of the granary. Uh, someone with the responsibility to see that all the famished souls have access to the bread of life. There's the covenant. There's the birthright. There's the family business. 
And Joseph is already exemplifying that, personifying it. Now in verse 7, when Joseph saw his brethren, he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, Well, from, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. Now, as we'll see through the rest of this story, there's a reason he doesn't want them to recognize him quite yet. Uh, there is some growing up to do on their part. There's some proving of themselves after their, their difficult past toward him. And so he doesn't want them to know quite yet who he is. And so he speaks roughly and makes himself strange. Now, we started seeing this last week, that the story of Joseph in Egypt is so full of types and shadows of Jesus Christ. This, to me, is an interesting one, where here, is, here he is. He's their savior, to, so, so to speak. He's the one that will provide them with the bread of life. And yet, it's not such an easy recognition on their part. They don't know who he is. He knows them, but they don't know him. And that describes our relationship with the Lord sometimes. God knows us. Do we know God? Christ knows us intimately. Do we know him just as well? And I think it's interesting, too, as far as the, the rough language or the making himself strange. My strange work is a phrase that the Lord uses to describe what he does. And I wonder sometimes if we're put off by the strangeness of his strange work or put off by the peculiarity of his peculiar people. Or what about speaking roughly? You remember, I mean, speaking of bread of life, when Jesus gives the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6, this is right on the heels of him multiplying loaves and fishes. And the people are like, sweet, we get treats at the end of class? Sign me up for the whole semester. Well, they come back to the next day of class and Jesus tells them, uh, yeah, no treats today. Like, what? He said, in fact, I might not be what you think. Uh, because if you thought I came to free you from Rome, I'm actually here to free you from sin. I'm a spiritual Messiah more than a military one. And when it comes to, to multiplying loaves and fishes, that's what God did for your ancestors in the wilderness. And that didn't actually do much for them, spiritually speaking. They ate the manna, but now they're gone. And the manna that God is trying to provide you through me is the bread of life. It's the bread of my body. It's the wine of my blood. And it's then when it dawns on them, wait a minute, you're not here to solve all of our temporal problems? That they start to leave in droves, muttering under their breath that these are hard sayings. Who can hear them? Hard sayings? Well, there's Joseph speaking roughly. A marvelous work and a wonder, but one that seems strange by worldly perspective? Well, there's making himself strange unto them. A Messiah that has no beauty wherewith we would desire him, like Isaiah said? What? To me, there's something powerful about the Lord introducing himself to us along those lines. It's, it's a test of our faith. It's when he asks Peter and the apostles, are you also going to leave? And Peter's response, well, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Even if those words include some hard sayings, even if your speech is sometimes a bit rough towards us in crying repentance, in calling us out from our sins, in stirring us up to repentance, sometimes speaking roughly is exactly what we need. And I am sorry if, if I sometimes act offended. 
I need to have a soft enough heart to see past that and realize that the Lord is trying to help me come unto him. He is our birthright brother, no matter how he might look from the outside. So verse 9, Joseph is now remembering the dreams which he dreamed of them. And he said unto them, Ye are spies, to see the nakedness of the land are ye come. And by nakedness he means vulnerability or weakness, or the undefended parts. If this is some kind of military mission from these, these outsiders coming in to pretend to get food, but really scope out their, the Egyptian weaknesses so they can come and, and take over the food and take over the country themselves. Well, now Joseph knows that's not the case, but it's interesting that he admitted something there. Are you here to scout out the weaknesses, the nakedness of the land? Now, Egypt is in better condition than anywhere else in the, in the Mideast. That's why everybody's coming to buy food from, from Joseph. But to me, there's something applicable there about the church. If we are the Lord's storehouse, if we're the granary of God, and people are coming because they need help, they need spiritual sustenance, I sometimes worry, are we turning them away because we're ashamed of our own nakedness? Or maybe even worse, are we oblivious to the fact that we have things in need of strengthening or covering ourselves? I'm impressed with Joseph recognizing, yeah, we're not perfect here in Egypt either. And we're in a famine just like you are. We've just prepared for it in better ways. But that doesn't mean we're, we're perfect. All our bases are not covered. There's still some nakedness even here. And I hope that doesn't dissuade us from being honest with others about places where we as members of the church are lacking, places where there's still some more covering up with the atonement of Christ that's necessary, or more preparation required on our part to truly meet the needs of a world that, that requires our assistance. I, when people, I wonder sometimes when people join the church, they've met the missionaries, and that's about as, as close to God as you can get, but then when they come and meet the rest of us, I sometimes wonder, it's like, yikes. You've come and seen the nakedness of the land. I'm sorry we're not better than we are. But we've prepared as much as possible in hopes of being able to offer you something to help. And that's the kind of disciple, that's the kind of oh, grain giver we need to become. Well, in verse 10, they said unto him, Nay, my Lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one man's sons. We are true men. Thy servants are no spies. Now, they're trying to give some backstory here, okay? We're all brothers here. We're trying to explain, to kind of humanize ourselves and let you know that we, we come in earnest. But that phrase, we are true men, I wonder what's going on in Joseph's mind when he hears that. Are you really? True there means right or just or honest. Are you true men? Have you always been? Or is this a more recent phenomenon? And is it true that you're true men? I was looking up that word in the Hebrew, and it's interesting. It comes from a single word, uh, but it's the same word used in the creation account at the end of every day when God commands something to happen, and, it, and it's done. And so it was, is a phrase that sometimes appears. Let there be light. And there was light. Okay, good. It did what it was supposed to. It was true. It was faithful. And there's something about this language here of, 
Are you the type that when God says you'll do it? Are you true men? Verse 13, Joseph then says, I, I still don't believe you. So he, they get more specific. Thy servants are 12 brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. To which I picture Joseph wondering, oh, could you finish that sentence? One is not? Not what? Not around? Not alive? Not missed? Not loved? Tell me about that brother that seems to be missing. But rather than go down that path, instead he provides them with a way to prove themselves. Here's a test of sorts. Verse 15, hereby ye shall be proved. By the life of Pharaoh, ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. So send one of you, and let him fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether there be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely ye are spies. You catch the word he focused on? Let's see if there is any truth in you. Let's see if you really are the true men you claim to be. You said you have a brother at home, a little brother. Hmm. Let's use him as proof. I'll tell you what, there are ten of you here. I'll keep nine of you in prison so that one of you, there's, there's collateral for you. And then I'll send one of you back to Canaan, if that's where you say you're from. Go produce this brother that you claim to have. And then I'll let all eleven of you go free. Now notice the nature of the test. This test will have something to do with how you feel about your youngest brother. Now, why do you think that's on Joseph's mind? Uh, when I was second youngest brother, how did you treat me? What will you do? If Benjamin has taken my place at home, what will you do with him? Well, after keeping them in prison for three days, Something about three days in prison with Joseph's stories, right? Butler, Baker. Well, after three days, he says, you know, I think I'll even be more merciful than I originally intended. Because keeping nine of you here and sending one home might be a bit overkill. So let's switch it around. And I'll keep one of you here. The nine of, that are remaining can then go back to Canaan. But you better bring your younger brother when you get back. Joseph says, this do and live. For I fear God. If ye be true men, there it is again, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison, and go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses, but bring your youngest brother unto me. So shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. By the way, interesting difference there. In the previous verses, he invoked Pharaoh's authority twice. By Pharaoh, I say this. So it's like I swear on Pharaoh's life, his political leader. But this time... I fear God. Thinking of Pharaoh, I was just. Thinking of God, I'm feeling more merciful. And because I fear God, because I reverence him, I will be more merciful to you than originally intended. There's one other thing about this as well, because if you end up leaving one brother here, that's another test on this side of things. I'm curious to see what you'll do about Benjamin back in Canaan, but I'm also curious what you'll do about your brother here. Because basically what I'm asking you to do is to abandon a brother in a prison. Not unlike you abandoning a brother in a pit. What will you do? Will you just leave him there and turn a blind eye to his needs? 
Well, verse 21, the brothers say one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother. And they're not talking about the brother they're going to have to leave behind in Egypt, nor are they talking about the brother that they already left behind in Canaan, namely Benjamin. They're talking about Joseph. Years have passed, and it's still weighing on their conscience. Hearts pricked. We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. To catch the language there? Thinking back to that time when a 17-year-old Oh, 17. Yeah, I know 17-year-olds can kind of be in your face and be a little prideful at times. I know I was. And that was part of what got Joseph into, into trouble in the first place, giving evil reports and tattletaling on big brothers that weren't quite as good a shepherd as he wanted to be, uh, the, telling his dreams without really understanding or not caring, perhaps, how his brothers would react to them. But as full of overconfidence as a 17-year-old might be, when push comes to shove, there's still a lot of fear at that age. I know I felt that too. As it dawns on him, my brothers are betraying me. They're selling me to these Midianite merchantmen, and I'm going to be dragged off away from my family and probably never see them again. Don't do this. I'm sorry. I take back everything I said. I'll be a better brother, but please be better brothers to me. When we saw the anguish of his soul, that puts in perspective what Joseph was feeling and what he was expressing. It said, when he besought us, other translations speak of him begging for mercy there. And we would not hear. Talk about Laman and Lemuel, past feeling. In fact, this is the Old Testament equivalent of those Lamans and Lemuels toward their younger brother Nephi. Ready to bind him? Ready to slay him? Well, they're doing the same. And they wouldn't listen. We didn't care what he felt. Well, now we're starting to. And there's no escaping that. That last line, therefore is this distress come upon us? We saw our brother's distress and we ignored it. Now there's no way to ignore the distress that is coming upon us. You see, there's, you'll see this several times throughout the rest of the Old Testament. I call it the principle of enforced empathy. It's, it's a scary one. You remember the old saying by President Benson where he said, God will have a humble people. You can either choose to be humble or you'll be compelled to be humble. Either way, humility is an order for the day. Well, the same principle applies for empathy. We are meant to mourn with those that mourn so that we can then comfort those that stand in need of comfort. We're supposed to condescend, come down with, so we can have compassion, come with, passion, feeling, suffering. That's where sympathy comes in. Sim, shared or with, pathy, feeling, suffering, or better yet, empathy, to not just feel with them, but to feel it in ourselves. That's what really motivates us to want to lift and serve and help because we feel for them. We feel with them. We feel like them. Well, in the Old Testament, there are places where the Lord is brutally clear that if you don't choose to feel for another person, 
then I will put you through what they've gone through. So like it or not, you'll end up feeling with them. I, that's a scary thought. I would much rather choose empathy than to be forced into the same dungeon of discouragement, the same fellowship of suffering. And that's what's happening here. You didn't choose empathy when your brother was 17. You would not feel for him. Well, now you will feel like him. Verse 22, Reuben then speaks up. Firstborn. He's the one that first spoke up back there in Dothan when they were talking about killing him. He said, no, we can't do that. Here he answers them and says, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child? And ye would not hear? Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. Now, there's two possible ways to interpret that. Giving Reuben the, bene the benefit of the doubt or not. If this is negative, then it's same old Reuben. Back then, it was a matter of, I'm the oldest son. I'm going to be held responsible for this. Remember how he says it? I, even I, what am I going to say to, to our father? And I wonder if it's the same thing where it's like, didn't I tell, I told you so. I'm the one that stood up for him and none of you would listen. And now we all have to bear the brunt because of your stupid mistake. Well, that's worst case. Best case scenario. Maybe this is something that has been weighing so heavily on his conscience that he's expressing a regret he has harbored for years. I, didn't I speak to you? but not forcibly enough. Oh, I gave some token defense of little Joseph, but I didn't stand up for him the way I should have, the way any little brother deserves from an older brother. And I regret it. I'm sorry for that. Now, like I said, we don't know which was the case with Reuben. And honestly, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you and I learn from both possibilities. And I just hope that we are not selfish in, in trying to avoid any kind of blame, but rather self-aware enough to realize where we could have been better. Well, verse 23 says that they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. And like I said, there's, some, there's a reason he needs to remain strange to them. Full recognition can't come till later because there's some lessons to be learned along the way. But I do love the thought of someone who knows us so perfectly well, sometimes choosing an interpreter, a middleman, to get in the way, to help us, well, to help us see or to help himself see in us. Will we still listen to him? Prophets are the Lord's interpreters. And God is so much closer to us than we realize. Prophets aren't getting in the way. They're pointing the way to, to a greater source. But I do find it interesting sometimes that we sometimes assume God isn't as close as he really is. He is so aware. Listen to the interpreters a little more closely and you'll understand. Very little has to be lost in translation. Well, more than understand us, he loves us. And you see that in verse 24. Joseph turned himself about from them and wept and returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Now that was all quick in one verse. I wonder how long it actually took. The feelings that he had, just, these are my brothers. 
I don't know how, how much is, is negative feelings and tears of sorrow about what damage they caused, the trauma he's still dealing with. Then again, knowing what we knew about Joseph last week and even being surprised at the sorrow of fellow prisoners. I think he's past that. And I think his tears are tears of love and tears of joy. And there's a chance for reunion here. But there also is a chance for repentance here. And I'm going to hold back and, and make sure they have that. So what does he do? He dries his eyes. He comes back and says, Simeon, let's go with you. Now, why Simeon? He had 10 to choose from. Honestly, I don't know. And the scriptures don't give us a clue. We don't know enough about Simeon. I don't know his role in the betrayal of Joseph when he was young. I mean, really, the main thing we know about Simeon is him oh, using the covenant as bait, tricking the people of Shechem into being circumcised, and then slaughtering the men there. Uh, I mean, horrible example. And yet, what was he doing? He was defending the honor of his youngest sister. Hmm. Yes, there's some... Uh, the way he went about it was all wrong, but you would go to those kinds of lengths on behalf of a younger sibling. Hmm. Let's see if you'll do that for a little brother. Simeon, you stay. Then, verse 25, Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn. After all, that's what they'd come for, right? We're starving back in Canaan. We brought all this money to buy food. Well, fill their sacks with that corn. But then something they hadn't expected. He also commanded his servants to restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way. And thus did he unto them. They laded their asses with the corn and departed thence. Now, I think here's another little test of sorts. Because last time uh, we were together and you sold me. I remember Judah talking about wanting those 20 pieces of silver. Well, is that still all that matters to you? Are you in this for some kind of financial gain? I'll, I'll give you that financial gain to see what you will do with it. Will you take something for nothing? Is profit your priority? Or there might be something else he's trying to do here, because this is the first of two times he'll do just this. You see, there's something about money that's dehumanizing. It's, it's commodification and commercialism and... And what it does is it reduces a relationship down to mere dollars and cents. That we can agree upon the value of money and that can be depersonalized because I can just take that and then use it for someone else and in some other transaction. That's all it is. Money allows things to be transactional instead of relational. In a relational economy, it's not money that's passing hands, it's, it's hands shaking hands and agreeing on something, and I'll give you this, and you give me that, and so on. What's interesting here, well, I'll give you an example. Isaiah says this. It's quoted in the Book of Mormon as well. Come buy milk and honey without money and without price, which Joseph has just ensured his brothers did. You came to buy milk and honey, or in this case, grain. And it's going to end up being without money and without price. Now, if you buy something, then there's, isn't there a price to it? And if there's no money and no price, then it's not buying, right? I mean, can you picture this? Oh, can I have some of that milk and honey? Sure. How much is it? Oh, it's no money, no price. Oh, so you're just giving this away? Nope, I'm selling it. 
Oh, uh, sorry, I'm confused. How much do I owe you for it? Oh, nothing. Oh, th then so you are giving it. No, I'm selling it. For how much? Then you can picture this frustration in a, a transactional state of mind. And I, I love that verse because it suggests that, yes, there is a, a cost to this. But it's the price of discipleship. It's not money. It's not transactional. It's relational. And for these brothers, I don't want you to leave thinking all you did was give some money and get some grain. I Yes, there's a test. What will you do about the money? But more than that, I'm hoping to rekindle a relationship because if you if you still have the same money you came with but now you have all of this grain i guess the grain is a gift a gift based on our relationship one that i'm trying to resurrect well watch what they do once they realize it verse 27 as one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender in the inn he espied his money for behold, it was in his sack's mouth. And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored. And lo, it is even in my sack. And their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done unto us? They're not stoked at like, Hey, we got undercharged. This is great. It's like, No, we're dead. Because he's going to think we stole, oh, that we stole all this grain when we didn't. We intended to pay for it. But here's our, our money still with us. How is this possible? Notice they said at the end, what is this that God hath done unto us? This is karma. This is law of the harvest. This is reaping what we sowed. Oh, that, those, 20, those cursed 20 pieces of silver, they're coming back to bite us. And here we are with money in hand and sacks full of grain. And if we get caught with this, we're dead men. Again, this part of the test... Yes, your wallets are full, but now how do you feel about your brother? What will you do here? What will you say to your father? Well, we'll see that next. Verse 29, they came unto Jacob their father unto the land of Canaan. They made it all the way home. And told him all that befell unto them. Now remember when they came back after selling their little brother, they came back and didn't tell him all. Oh, they... They pretended that they were sad. They didn't even admit that oh, we found Joseph's coat on the way back. They even played stupid on that. Remember last week? They're like, I don't know. Have you, you seen this coat? I mean, it looks vaguely familiar. Uh, and that's when it dawns on, on Jacob what must have happened. And he's devastated. His sons come to comfort him as he refuses to be comforted. But they don't offer him the comfort that really would have made a difference. They withhold that all-important information. Well, not this time. At least not... They're not withholding the information of what took place on this trip. This is full disclosure. This is honest confession. We're seeing some change here. Verse 35, they empty their sacks. All their money is still there. And when both they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And for good reason. There's some poetic justice here. Because the first round, they were guilty and knew it. But tried to appear innocent. Well, this time, they're actually innocent, but have been made to appear guilty. And what will they do with that guilt? In verse 36, Jacob says unto them, 
Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not. Simeon is not. You will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. There's actually more truth to the beginning of that statement than he realized. You have bereaved me of my children. It's obvious with Simeon, it's, he's gone. It's obvious that Benjamin will have to go. But the fact he includes Joseph in that, ye have bereaved me of my children. Does he know something that maybe they haven't said? I don't know. But if that's more true than he realizes, the end of his statement is more false. When he said, all these things are against me. Actually, no. All these things will work together for your good. And that's exactly what trial tends to do, if we'll turn to God in them. Well, verse 37, Reuben speaks up again. And he says to his father, Slay my two sons, if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. I love the courage of Reuben there. I am so sure, so committed to protecting your youngest son, Benjamin, that I will put my two sons as collateral. If you've already lost a Joseph and fear losing a Benjamin, I will take your place. I will feel your pain by proxy. This is empathy chosen rather than empathy enforced. I will come to know myself what it feels like to lose two sons if I don't do everything in my power to preserve the life of Benjamin. Are you seeing Reuben here as a type and shadow of Christ? Oh, it's beautiful to see his willingness to, to take the place of someone else, to offer collateral, and I will suffer so that you don't have to. I will do all within my power to keep Benjamin safe. Well, Jacob responds in verse 38, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in the which ye go, then shall ye bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Again, there's a father's devastation when mischief befalls any of his children. Now, I don't know what this says about Simeon. <laughs> Part of me is like, uh, Dad, um, okay, I understand why you want to preserve Benjamin's life, but Simeon's still back in Egypt, stuck in prison. He's, I was offering my two sons as collateral. At least they still get to be here. We already have collateral back in Egypt. And Simeon is the one taking the place of Benjamin if he doesn't come. Well, be that as it may. Sorry, Simeon. I'm staying here with Benjamin. Benjamin's staying here with me. Well, that can only last so long because by chapter 43, they're out of food again. Uh, I guess the camels and, and, and oxen or donkeys can only carry so much. And now it's running out. And so Jacob, again, what are you looking around for? Go get up and do something. There's still food back in Egypt. And that's when the brothers remind father, remember, we can't go back. They say in verse 3, that ruler in Egypt told us, ye shall not see my face except your brother be with you. Now there's beautiful symbolism there too. We cannot access the bread of life without our brother. There's no way we can get to it. We cannot return to that ruler unless our brother is at our side. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. 
And so if we ever hope to see our Father again, if we ever hope to gain access to the bread of life, then our brother must be with us. In verse 4, Judah pleads with his father, If thou wilt send our brother with us, we will go down and buy thee food. But if thou wilt not send him, we will not go down. I picture all of us saying similar words in pre-mortality. As the father asked, whom shall I send? And we all wondered, if there's no Messiah, then there's no, there's no way for any of us to return. Oh, the risk of the plan of salvation all rested on the Savior's shoulders. Will you be able to atone for our sins? And here, I, I'm not going down unless you send our brother with us. Benjamin, that brother at the right hand. If he will go down, then we'll go down with him. But if he doesn't come, then we can't go. Beautiful imagery. Well, Israel gets angry. Can't blame him. He chides them. Why did you even tell them you had a little brother? You've done enough damage. And they were like, Dad, how are we supposed to know? <laughs> we were just giving them backstory. We were trying to defend ourselves that we weren't spies. So here's the whole story. A family back home and a father and a little brother and... You think we could have guessed that this is how it would result? Well, Judah says to his father in verse 8, Send the lad with me. We will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. Everybody's writing on this. And then this amazing statement from Judah, of all people. He that was more focused on profit than anything else before. He says to his dad, I will be surety for him. So I'll be down payment. I will be collateral. Of my hand shalt thou require him, if I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee. Then let me bear the blame forever. This is Judah making a very similar statement to Reuben and doing a similar thing to what Simeon just did. See how we're going down the older brothers? Reuben, Simeon, Judah. I'll take his place. I'll bear his blame. Remember, this is Judah as Christ would come through Judah's line, oh, here's Judah standing in for his most famous descendant, who says likewise, I will be surety for everyone. I will bear their blame. I'll suffer their sins. I'll take Barabbas' place on the cross, since he was supposed to go there. I'll take Joseph of Arimathea's place in the tomb, since he was the one that was supposed to be buried there someday. I'll take everyone's place and become their collateral so that I can face the king of kings and make sure everyone comes home. Judah is offering that here, willingly. Of course, then he kind of mutters in verse 10, except we had lingered, surely now we had returned this second time. It's like we hadn't wasted all this time. We could have gone there and back twice. Come on, Dad. <laughs> There's no other way. We're going to starve to death, all of us. You're not just, yes, you have the danger of losing a son here. But if we don't go, you'll lose all your sons, all your daughters, all your grandchildren. We have to eat. And I will do anything to make sure that we have access to the bread of life. Verse 11, then Israel finally says to them, if it must be so now, do this. But let's sweeten the deal as much as we can. Take of the best fruits in the land in your vessels. Carry down the manna present, a little balm, a little honey, spices, myrrh, nuts, almonds. Take double money in your hand 
and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks. Carry it again in your hand. Peradventure, it was an oversight. It sounds like the same man who overcompensated Esau a couple of weeks ago. Remember when he went to see him and he just loads up the presents and sends as many flocks and herds as he can, just hoping to win his brother's forgiveness. Well, here, unbeknownst to him, it's his son. But if there was some oversight, if we've done something wrong, send him our best fruits. That's some way, is that what Joseph was looking for? The fruits of repentance, the fruits of goodness, the fruits of real change. Let's send him balm to comfort whatever damage we caused. Let's send him honey to sweeten things or spice to add flavor, myrrh to signify sacrifice. Let's give him all that we can. Let's double our payment price and return to him whatever money that somehow stayed in your sacks to begin with. We're going to show him we're not trying to steal anything. We're trying to buy. And we're okay even being overcharged. Please forgive us. Then in verse 13, the ultimate sacrifice on his part. Take also your brother and arise. Go again unto the man and then his prayer. And God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. In other words, if I lose my children, then I've lost everything. May God be merciful to all of us. Benjamin, go. Then verse 18. By then they've returned to Egypt. Joseph receives them into his own home. And the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. Now, this is going straight to the principal's office, right? They said, because of the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time are we brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for bondmen. I mean, they're losing hope by the minute. And so they turn to Joseph's steward, perhaps one of those interpreters, somebody that's been helping them, and they say, we cannot tell who put our money in our sacks. I know it looks like theft. We brought it back. We brought double payment for the next round. We're so sorry. We don't know what happened. The steward just reassures them. It's okay. He says, peace be to you. Fear not. Your God and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And he brought Simeon out unto them. Now you really wonder what's going on in the brother's mind and heart. It's like, what? He had our money the whole time? Then how did we get... This makes no sense at all. What is, well, beggars can't be choosers. Um, maybe this is that almighty God and his mercy towards us. Simeon, I'm sorry it took so long. Dad wouldn't budge on Benjamin, but we're back. And Simeon comes forth. Then verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed themselves to him to the earth. Fulfilling the dream all over again. He doesn't even ask about the, the, the gift they've given. Doesn't even seem to acknowledge it. He just asks them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom ye spake? Is he yet alive? I love that Joseph is not concerned about the gifts they've brought. He's concerned more about the gifts he hopes to give them. Everything okay at home? How you guys been? 
How's your father? Still alive? Verse 28, they answered, Thy servant our father is in good health. Yes, he is yet alive. They bowed down their heads. They made obeisance. And then Joseph lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. Oh, maybe still some some family resemblance there. Benjamin never knew what his mother looked like, but Joseph did. And Joseph said, Is this your younger brother of whom ye spake unto me? And he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. Now you think Joseph had to hide his tears when he saw his older ten brothers. Imagine the emotion when he sees his younger, full-blooded brother, Benjamin. Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. You want to talk about deep emotion gut-filled, visceral, his bowels yearning. You can see the sensitivity of Joseph, how much he loved his family, and how hard it would have been, therefore, to have been ripped away from them. To think of Benjamin, probably from his own perspective, if that's how my brothers treated me, how will they treat him? This little boy that never knew his mom, that... Can he defend himself? Will he be the father's favorite? The one father loves and the one his brothers hate? Well, he's seen Benjamin for the first time in so long. Verse 31, he washed his face and went out and refrained himself and said, set on bread. How's that for restraint on his side? You know what it's like to, you don't want to come back out because you're, You've been crying and everyone will know. So there he is washing his face, trying to restrain himself and go out and just let's get on with the business. There's something to me about divine restraint where you sense God. I mean, the the scriptures speak of him as rich in mercy, as delighting in forgiving, that his heart is moved towards us, a father and a son of perfect love toward us. And I picture divine restraint sometimes having to reign in mercy so that justice has time to teach its lessons, to do its work. Let patience have her perfect work, James says. Well, we have to let justice exercise its demands as well before mercy comes rushing in to save us. There's some learning and growing up these brothers have to do. And here's Joseph restraining. Verse 32 then, Joseph, his brothers, all the Egyptians, they eat a meal separately, which is interesting until it explains it in this way. Because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians. Wow. Hebrews are eating with Hebrews is an abomination? Well, you can sense some racism here, some prejudice here, which makes it all the more amazing that second in command in the entire kingdom is a Hebrew. And they would have known that. I mean, remember what Potiphar's wife was saying, this Hebrew hath come in to mock us. Well, ironic that they consider it an abomination to eat with Hebrews, but they consider it a great blessing from the God of the Hebrews that a Hebrew would give them food at all. It's all owing to to Joseph that they have food to eat to begin with. Well, verse 33, Joseph had laid out the, the place settings, evidently. 
and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men marveled one at another. It's just like, whoa, how did he know? He doesn't even know us. And here's this Egyptian leader looking at it, say, you, what's your name again? Reuben? Okay, why don't you sit there at the, the head of the table? Uh, you, name? Um, Simeon? Why don't you sit next to him? You, uh, what, Le Levi? Okay. And he goes out and he puts them all in age order, in birth order, and they're just dumbfounded. How does he do this? This, I mean, they, cunning and, or excuse me, discreet and wise were the words used to, that Pharaoh used to describe him? Yeah, seems like it. Then verse 34, he took and sent messes unto them from before him. That just means portions served from his own table. But Benjamin's mess was five times so much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Now, when that chapter ends, you see another test beginning. I'm going to play favorites. And I'm going to give preferential treatment to your youngest brother. How will you react to that? Well, they're going to, we're going to see how they pass that test. Well, chapter 44 begins. Verse 1, He commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry. And, second time, Put every man's money in his sack's mouth. Now, we talked about this before already as a test. Are you just in it for the profit? We talked about it in terms of transactions versus relationships. And let me say one more thing about that, because what I love about it is it's now becoming obvious, I don't want your money. I just want to give you this grain. And if you force your money on me, then it's not a gift. It's just a payment. It's just a purchase. And I don't want it to be like that. I want this to remain a gift. So keep your money and let me give you something without money and without price. Oh, there's some purchasing going on, but it's, it's, it's relationship. It reminds me, uh, if you want to get the full version of this, you'll have to go back like two years ago when we were studying King Benjamin's address in the Book of Mormon. It's one of the first lessons on Unshaken. And I tried to explain this concept of the two ledgers. When King Benjamin says that God has, in the first place, he's blessed us, he's given us life, he's preserved that life, he's given us agency and let us rejoice, he saves us through his grace. That's all ledger number one. And we're like, okay, uh, you keep adding debits on my account. How do I pay you back for that? Is there anything I can do as far as credits are concerned? Because I look at ledger one and man, am I in the red. Creation, preservation, salvation. And then King Benjamin says, and all that he asks of you, and our ears perk up. It's like, okay, finally, something I can put on the credit side. I can pay him back. All he asks of you is to obey, keep his commandments. And you're like, yes, that's what I can do to pay him back. But then King Benjamin goes on. But once, he, once you obey, he doth immediately bless you and therefore hath paid you and therefore you still owe him. You're still an unprofitable servant. What have you to boast? And it's like, what? How does that work? You see, we want to keep it on one ledger. You want me to obey. Great. And I'll work and I'll serve and I'll, in fact, I'll work so hard I pay you back. And eventually I can, you can stamp it paid in full and we're good. And the Lord's like, yeah, that's not really how it works. I've got a second ledger on all of that, on all those works and all that service, all that obedience. As soon as you do it and you keep saying, don't pay me, don't bless me, just put it on my account. 
and help me work off my debt. I'm like, nah, I'll immediately bless you. And that way, ledger number two, your obedience and my immediately blessing you for it, always stays even. Actually, you're probably still in debt over there because our blessings always outweigh our works. Uh, but that side, I'll never be in your debt. So that on this side, ledger one, you'll always be in mine. But don't think of it as debt. I don't. Think of it as gift. I do. I want creation and preservation and salvation to be gifts of grace. So don't be surprised if you find the money you were trying to pay me with still in your sack's mouth along with all the blessings that I filled it with. I want to keep the ledgers separate so you know that I am a, a loving God who wants to give you gifts of grace rather than simply transactions out of debt. I love that principle. Now verse 2 adds one more wrinkle. Joseph says to his steward, put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest and his corn money. And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Now is this just another test of how will you respond when your youngest brother gets preferential treatment? Not quite. Because in verse 4, Joseph then sends that steward after them as soon as they leave. Tells his steward, go head them off at the pass. Apprehend them. And when the steward catches up, he says to them pretty gruffly, right, speaking roughly again, Wherefore have you rewarded evil for good? Which, by the way, is exactly what they had done to Joseph in his childhood. Is not this it in which my Lord drinketh, and whereby indeed he divineth? Ye have done evil in so doing. See, what he's talking about there is that cup. It's a divining cup. Now, in early American history, they talked about divining rods. We've seen seer stones and Urim and Thummim and other tangible objects that help us center our intangible faith. Well, there was this divining cup. And here's Joseph, king of dreams, and somehow that's associated with it. In some ways, this might be the Egyptian equivalent of the coat of many colors. That this is some object, some mantle of authority, some sign or token of divine power. And now it's missing. And so the steward's gone out after them and says, one of you stole this coat of many colors. More accurately, one of you stole the divining cup. Now, of course, they all deny wrongdoing. And rightfully so. Nobody did anything. But the way they say it in verse 8 Behold the money which we found in our, in our sack's mouth, we brought again unto thee out of the land of Canaan. How then should we steal out of thy Lord's house silver or gold? It's like, we didn't even steal the first set. You said so yourself. We, uh, we thought we might have, there been some kind of oversight, so we brought it all back. Look, we are not trying to steal anything. In some ways, it's like they're playing hot potato with the blessings of God. No, no, you take it. No, no, you take it. Uh, we, we did not take this. And then in verse 9, how's this for overconfidence? With whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die, and we also will be my Lord's bondmen. Now this reminds me of Jacob's overconfidence. When Laban tracked them down, uh, afraid that somebody had stolen his household gods. Remember that weird story a couple weeks ago? And Jacob said, well, wherever you find him, you can kill the, the thief 
not knowing that his beloved Rachel had taken them. And then Rachel gets out of that situation like we, do, like we discussed. But that sense of overconfidence in your own innocence, we've done nothing to deserve this. That's, that's a dangerous position to take. Far better to be humble, ask, Lord, is it I, allow for the possibility of mistake on your own part. That way you're not passing final judgment on yourself or anyone else. Because that's what they're doing. Let him die, that's final judgment. There's no recovering from that. So be careful before you pass final judgment of guilt or innocence at all. Make sure you hear the whole story. Well, verse 10, the steward says, Now also let it be according unto your words, but one change, because your version doesn't seem very just. He with whom it is found shall be my servant, and ye shall be blameless. So it would be unjust to punish the innocent for something they hadn't done. But it will be just to punish the guilty. So let's find out who it is. They start with the oldest, Reuben, and work their way down to Benjamin. And you can picture their confidence swelling with every open sack. Reuben, check, uh, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and all the way down. And, and of course, little Benjamin's not getting anything wrong. He's practically perfect until the sack is opened and out spills the silver cup. And the, drain, the, the blood drains from every older brother's face. No. You picture Reuben, there go my two sons. You picture Simeon, I should have stayed in prison the whole time. You picture Judah, the blame be on me. I am surety for him. What will our father do? Benjamin, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Verse 13, then they rent their clothes and laid it every man his ass and returned to the city. Do you remember when Jacob first saw the bloodied coat of many colors? And thinking that his son had been rent in pieces, he then rent his coat into pieces as if to say, I wish I could have taken Joseph's place. I wish those beasts had, had torn me apart instead of tearing apart my son. Well, to see all of these brothers now doing likewise, all of them willing to, to replace their guilty brother with their innocent selves, all in hopes of preserving him and preserving their father. It's amazing how much they've changed over these years. Well, they rush back to Joseph, who says to them in verse 15, What deed is this that ye have done? What ye not that such a man as I can certainly divine? Didn't you realize that I would know? I don't need my cup to divine. It's just a crutch that, that I don't even need to lean on. How could you not know that your crimes cannot be hid from God? This is the same Joseph that tried to say the similar thing to Potiphar's wife, right? I, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I'm not worried about Potiphar not finding out. I'm worried about God finding out because he always will. How could you not realize that, you men of Canaan? Well, in verse 16, Judah says, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. 
Judah had been among the most devious in plotting the, the way to avoid anyone finding out about their sins against Joseph. Well, now he realizes there's no hiding from God. There will be a payment to the piper. And so he's asking how that payment might be made. There's real repentance. What can I do? How shall we clear ourselves? I've often said that to my kids. It's not just a matter of saying sorry. It's asking the person, how can I make this right? You are my judge, legitimately so. So can you pass some kind of judgment as far as how I can resolve this and, and be able to return to a positive relationship? Verse 17, Joseph responds like his steward did earlier. God forbid that I should do so, but the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. As for you, get you up in peace unto your father. So again, it wouldn't be just to punish the innocent with the guilty. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I will punish the guilty, however. And that's Benjamin. And like always, there's another test for the brothers. Will they just go a, an every man for himself kind of approach? And dad, sorry we couldn't bring back Benjamin, but he stole the man's cup. What were we supposed to do? Will it be every man for himself or will they stick together? Will they do anything and everything in their power to defend their youngest brother? Well, 18, Judah intends to do just that. He comes near to Joseph and he said, Oh, my Lord, let thy servant, I pray thee, speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not thine anger burn against thy servant, for thou art even as Pharaoh. Interesting language. Every time he refers to himself, it's thy servant. Every time he refers to Joseph, it's my Lord. I mean, you're, you're as high as Pharaoh himself. Talk about deferential treatment. Talk about, oh, groveling before him. These same brothers were so guilty of rough language toward their younger brother when they were little. And it's the same person that he's speaking to, but in a completely different vein. I worry sometimes, do we change the, our language? Do we change our approach depending on who we think our conversation partner might be? And as long as we can look down on them and think less of them, if their outward appearance is such that it's easy to pass judgment, then we speak roughly to them. But, oh, if we saw them for who they really are, would we speak much more reverently and carefully? We, we need to be cautious about shallow assumptions or unfounded stereotypes. Oh... We could be entertaining angels unawares, the, the Bible later says. Now in verse 20, Judah begins to explain the situation. We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, a little one. His brother is dead. He alone is left of his mother, and his father loveth him. You see how Judah is trying to play upon the emotions of this second in command? Old man. He can't handle this kind of grief. Little one, little Benjamin, his only full-blooded brother is gone. His mother passed away in childbirth. Please have pity. That's what I'm aiming at. I'm playing upon that pity in hopes that you will be merciful towards us. Makes you wonder where these sentiments were 
when he could have comforted his father, when he could have, well, he wasn't thinking about an old man and a child of his old age and mothers and family relationships. Can we be more feeling? Or are they past feeling? Do they believe these things themselves? I mean, they said it. His brother is dead. Oh, is he? Are you sure? Or have you fallen prey to your own lie? In verse 22, we said unto my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. That's why we couldn't bring him the first time. That's why it took us so long to bring him this time. We cannot go home without our brother. Take any of us in his place. Again, why didn't you worry that much about your father's feelings the first time? In fact, they recalled what Jacob had said in all of this. He had warned them, if ye take this also from me, Benjamin that is, and mischief befall him, ye shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. And so here's Judah again pleading for his youngest brother's life. He says to Joseph, Now therefore when I come to thy servant my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life, such a beautiful phrase. Are our lives bound up with one another? Joseph's, excuse me, Jacob's heart and Benjamin's heart. You can't tell where one ends and the next begins. They're all bound up together in the bundle of life. What will I say to him? In verse 31, it shall come to pass when he seeth that the lad is not with us, he will die. I can't let that happen. Verse 32, thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father saying, If I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. So there again is Judah standing in for Jesus as our surety, the father's answer to the risk inherent in agency. To picture the son saying to the father in similar vein, I'll bear their blame. I'll bring them home. You can count on that. Finally, then in verse 33, Now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord. Let the lad go up with his brethren, for how shall I go up to my father and the lad be not with me? Lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come on my father. It's now crystal clear. For Judah, and I would say for all of his brothers, they care more about the feelings of their father than their own freedom. They care more about what happens to their youngest brother than what happens to them. Any of them are willing to take Benjamin's place. And now Joseph knows. I've allowed justice to provide the interrogation. And you have passed. And so he can't wait any longer. Chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. He wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. These are tears of joy. They've passed their test. They changed. This is Esau and, jo and Jacob being reconciled to one another with all of the weeping and hugging that went into that incredible reunion. The same thing is now happening, echoing one generation later. 
Verse 3, Joseph said to his brethren, and no interpreter needed. <laughs> Here's full Hebrew. I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? That was his biggest worry all along. His brothers could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. You want to talk about being completely dumbfounded, just speechless. The impossible has just become more than possible. It is real. And there's my brother. C can it be? The last time we saw you, oh, I can't even go back there mentally. Your anguished cries. We are so sorry. Can you ever forgive us? And Joseph would say, I already have. Oh, this is what the older brother of the prodigal son should have done when that prodigal returned. This is now the youngest brother or the younger brother of all these prodigal elder brothers. But they've changed. And those that were dead are alive again, spiritually. In Joseph's case, he that was dead physically, or so they thought, is alive again as well. Talk about a reunion of siblings. So, so beautiful. Verse 4, Joseph said to them, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. He said it again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now that last line was probably a little unnerving for them. Uh-oh, he remembers. Ah, uh, okay. I mean, how could he forget? But this is the first time he mentioned it. He, that's why he's here. It's our fault. What are we going to do? But perhaps recognizing, seeing the, the fear perhaps in their body language, he says in verse 5, and this is such a magnificent statement, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. Now, a couple things there. We'll come back to the second part, that God sent me here. Whoa. Well, like I said, he says it again in just a few verses. So let me hold on to that statement. But the first part, don't be grieved and don't be angry because of what you did. Now, what gives them the permission not to feel sorrow or, or self-hatred is the fact that Joseph doesn't feel sorrow or hatred toward them. And this is the same guy who wondered about <laughs> sorrowful prisoners back in jail. Oh, I'm not sad. And, and don't get angry. I didn't get angry at the butler who forgot me. I'm not angry at you for betraying and abandoning me. I see the hand of God in all of this. And to me, one of the most glorious gifts of forgiveness is it allows people to forgive themselves. And that's usually the hardest one the hardest one to let off the hook. You've probably sensed that truth in your own life. You who are so willing to forgive others and so hesitant to forgive yourself. I'm so grateful for a brother who's been betrayed that is willing to say to you, all is forgiven. And because he forgives us, We've been granted permission to forgive ourselves. It's like Nephi when Laman and Lemuel finally come to their senses and, and they beg him for their forgiveness. And it says that Nephi frankly forgave them. Just frank, just why are you even looking at me? And then he turned them to the Lord and say, he's the one you should probably reconcile with. Okay, Our relationship's good. I'm past it. Make sure you're, you're getting back with your relationship with God. I loved his statement there. There's 
There's something about taking someone's IOU. And that's, that's what happens when somebody has offended us or sinned against us. We've got an IOU. And they, we can keep them in debt as long as we want, right? As long as I don't forgive them, they can stay in the prison of my own anger. Even no matter how hard they try to get out. No matter how much money they bring to pay me back for whatever supposedly was taken from me. But instead, to just, no, you can keep the money. Again, that was Esau's statement to Joseph, or to Jacob. I don't need it. I'm good. That was Joseph to his brothers here. But also just that sense of, let me see that IOU and rip it up. I'm, I'm not keeping any of the evidence to blackmail you with later on. No grief and no anger. I'm past it and you can be too. Now, this was just the beginning. The, the lean years were only two years in. And so five more years of famine ahead of them, Joseph lets them know. Guys, I mean, on the one hand, he could have kept this up. And how many times do they have to come back and forward and back and forward? And which, which brother will he keep in prison for a while? And how can I keep testing them? No, you've passed. And with five more years of famine ahead, just come. Leave the past behind us. Come into this, this present that has hope. And, and I'll provide for you. Go back and bring the rest of the family. He says in verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So it's not just about immediate deliverance today. It's about covering you for the next five years and beyond. This is meant to be a great deliverance. So live into it. And then he repeats what he said before about God about seeing the hand of God in all of this. Verse 8, So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh. Can you believe that? Lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, I'm astonished that Joseph could say that. Twice. It wasn't you, it was God. Now, What? God doesn't work by betrayal and abandonment and hatred. Oh, I know. But he can take beauty from ashes. And he doesn't even look to blame whoever started the fire. God, work, all things work together for good to them that love God. And I love God. I know he loves us. You know, I know he loves everyone. And so there had to be someone that could be his right-hand man to provide for everyone that was starving. And that happened to be me, which meant I had to get to Egypt somehow and had to come to know Pharaoh somehow. So I guess Butler was used by God and even Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. Now he didn't inspire the, her to do what she did, just like he didn't inspire you to do what you did. But was it Joseph Smith or Brigham Young? I can't remember who said every time uh, that, that they kick Mormonism, they, they just kick it upstairs. <laughs> oh, all this persecution, all the bad things. God can make something out of it. And that's exactly what he did here. I want to be more like Joseph here. I really do, because I've noticed something about myself. And if you'll uh, allow me to confess a little, I am a fixer by nature. I'm not always successful. I don't always know how to fix things, but I'm always looking for ways. And I'm always thinking 
is there a better way to do this? Is there a more efficient or more effective way? Is there a solution to the problems I see? And I struggle with that when I, I don't know, go through a parking lot that was Ill, poorly designed or a, a freeway exchange and like, yeah, they needed to do that or this, or just the way things are set up or I'm always looking for ways to improve things. And that can be a real gift and a real curse. And here's the curse side. I have found, and my wife and children have been kind enough to help me see it, that sometimes fixers also tend to be blamers. Because if you're trying to fix something, to make the fix permanent, you kind of want to see the source of the problem. And if we can fix that, then there's no more problems to fix down, downstream. Well, that's the danger. In our efforts to fix, are we blaming the source of the problem? And Joseph doesn't go there. It's amazing. He doesn't, he doesn't blame them, even though they deserve some blame. They caused some problems. But no, God made something good out of it. He fixed it. So I guess if he's going to fix, and I'll let him do any blame, if there is any. We talked about this a while ago, about untangling Christmas tree lights, uh, where when you think you've, you've sorted out the mess in one part of the strand, you end up just pushing it down somewhere else. And it's only God who knows the entire string from end to end and where the line between perpetrator and victim exists, because those are really fuzzy. That's why it's not up to us to blame. And just leave it with God, who knows everybody's circumstances. In some ways, the challenges we face are so multidimensional and often multi-causal or multi-generational. Mortality is just plain messy. And so why look for blame and why point fingers when at, behind it all is a God who is trying to sort out the entire mess? and make sure that everyone can learn and grow and become someone better as a result. I, I'm so impressed that Joseph could say it. I want to be better at saying it myself. When bad things happen, that's okay. Behind it all is a God who is cleaning things up already and who will bring beauty out of these ashes. I don't need to look for who's been striking the match. Let it go. Well, no need to look back with regret. Let's look forward with faith. That's verse 9 for you. Haste ye, and go up to my father, and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph. Yeah, he's still alive. God hath made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. Did you notice he didn't even worry about making sure they explained everything? I mean, dad's going to wonder, wait, Joseph's alive? He's in Egypt? How in the world did he get down there? Oh, good question, dad. <laughs> no, he doesn't. I mean, if they need to explain it, I'll let them deal with it. But I'm not going to force them to. I'm not going to rat them out. I'm not going to give my father an evil report. I, I tried that when I was young. It didn't turn out very well. Instead, no, there's no rehashing the sordid past. Don't tarry there. Dad, don't tarry. Brethren, don't tarry. Look forward. And there's a glorious present and even more glorious future. Just come and enjoy it together. That's so beautiful. Learn from the past. Don't live in it. 
Let's move forward. Well, verse 10, Thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen. Thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children. This, this is the message he wants them to bring to his father. Dad, you can be, we can be close again. So it's thou, thy children, a.k.a. my brothers, thy children's children, a.k.a. my nieces and nephews, including a bunch that I probably haven't even met yet, thy flocks, thy herds, all thou hast, there will I nourish thee, for yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. What a beautiful role reversal. Dad, I just want to nourish you. In fact, speaking of role reversal and beautiful symmetry on both sides, how old was Joseph when he was sold into Egypt? 17. And as we'll see in the remainder of this story, by the time Jacob moves down to Egypt to be with Joseph again, how long does he live there before he passes away? You guessed it. 17 years. I had 17 years with you on the front end, you nourishing me, giving me a coat of many colors. Can I spend the last 17 years of your life returning the favor, nourishing you, covering your nakedness as far as temporal things are concerned? Come now. Don't wait until you're in poverty. To me, there's something powerful there too. Don't wait until someone is reduced to absolute poverty before you start giving them a helping hand. It might be harder to recover by then. In fact, don't wait for someone to hit rock bottom before you begin lifting them out of it. Even when it comes to forgiveness, you don't have to make them pay the uttermost farthing before you turn another cheek and give them your forgiveness. I don't want to reduce you to poverty here. Verse 12, Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin that it is my mouth that speaketh unto you. I don't care how much time has passed. It's me. You see it? Little brother, you see it? Family resemblance? Go back and get dad. <laughs> I can't wait to see him. I got to stay here and keep passing out food, okay? I'm second in command. But go get dad as quick as you can. And so they do. Verse 13, Ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that ye have seen, and ye shall haste and bring down my father hither. But before they go, he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Now it doesn't end there. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. He treated the guilty the same way he treated the innocent. Oh, yes, he loved Benjamin, that full-blooded brother that had never done him wrong. But he gave the same loving embrace to those that had turned their backs on him once. Oh, talk about no respecter of persons. Now, in verse 16, the fame thereof was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brethren are come, and it pleased Pharaoh well, and his servants. And like I said, that would be despite Egyptians' prejudice against the Hebrews. Now, I don't, makes you wonder, did Pharaoh know the whole story? Part of me was like, wait, you're the one that betrayed this boy? I don't know if he would have been just as, as uh, eager to see God's hand in all of this. Oh, good thing you sent him down my way. He's saved all of us. It makes me think Joseph probably never explained to Pharaoh all the gory details of what got him there. 
In fact, we'd seen that earlier when he was explaining his situation back in prison. He had said to the butler and baker, I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews. I was stolen away. That's passive voice. That avoids pointing fingers. He didn't say, my brothers betrayed me. They sold me. No, I was stolen away. And here also have I done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. He, again, he, did, he didn't blame his brothers for the first issue. He didn't blame Potiphar's wife for the second. There's no finger pointing. It's just, yeah, I was stolen away. Huh, wonder how that happened. And yeah, I didn't do anything wrong to come here, but here I am. Huh. I'm amazed. He's a fixer that, that isn't a blamer. Man, how did he pull that off? There's the heads of the coin with no tails attached. Incredible. Well, Pharaoh is as excited about this as, as anybody. So it's like, yeah, go down, get your, get your family, bring them all back here. He says in verse 18 that Joseph ought to just bring everybody so they can eat the fat of the land. Now thou art commanded, this do ye. So it's, it's a done deal. It's already decided. You can't say no. Just bring your family down. Can't wait to meet them all. Uh, he goes on, take you wagons out of the land of Egypt for your little ones, for your wives. Bring your father. Come. Don't regard your stuff for the good of all the land of Egypt is yours. I won't take no for an answer. Quit protesting. Just bring them all. Well, Joseph loads up his brothers for the trip. And in verse 22, to all of them, he gave each man changes of raiment. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of raiment. Oh, yes, you stripped from me my coat of many colors. It's okay. Let me give you a coat to cover your nakedness for this trip. And you, Benjamin, I just can't help myself. I just, can I pour out even in greater abundance upon you? I, by now, I don't think he's concerned. That's not a test anymore. Yeah, your brothers will be just fine with this. Well, he sends them away, heavy laden for the journey. He warns them on their way out, see that ye fall not out by the way, which is good advice for anyone on a journey. You're along the covenant path. We're on the way to reconciliation. Don't fall out by the way. They make it home. They tell their father, Joseph is yet alive. In fact, he's governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. You want to talk about too good to be true? And yet it's true, Dad. Look, look at what we brought back. This is way more than we left with. And it's because Joseph and Pharaoh himself, just they want to bring the whole family down. You understand what this means, Father? Well, when he saw all of that evidence... His spirit revived, and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. Did you catch that? It is enough. I don't need all this stuff. All that matters to me is that Joseph is still alive. I get to see him again. However long or little I get to spend, He's had a past that's better than the one I pictured for him. He has a present. He has a future. And maybe I can be part of it. Well, the chapter ends and chapter 46 begins with Israel on this journey. He left with all that he had. He came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father, Isaac. Now, Beersheba is the southern border of the promised land. And Jacob, Israel, 
is leaving the land promised to him to go down to Egypt. Now, he had done this before when he had to go find covenant companions and escape Esau's wrath. And was, when he was heading north to go back to Haran, he was worried about that too. I'm leaving the promised land. I'm, I don't think I'm supposed to. Oh, God, will you go with me? And so as he sets up a, a pillar at Jacob's, at Jacob's ladder at Bethel, the house of God, knowing that God will be with me as I journey, well, now he's doing likewise. As he's headed south, he's now at Beersheba, the well of the oath. God, will you be with me in this trip too? I will sacrifice whatever it takes to make sure I keep the covenant even outside the promised land. I'll keep my promises wherever I go. Please go with me. And sure enough, verse 2, God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, we've had a long relationship, you and I. I still remember your old name. And when I gave it to you, when we promised to prevail in one another's lives, Jacob responds, I, I, here am I. And the Lord says, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. This is a repeat of the promise at Jacob's ladder. A promise at Bethel now becomes the promise at Beersheba. And whether you go north or south, into Haran or down to Egypt. I'm the God of the whole earth, and I'll be with you. Just stay with me. Well, Jacob gathers all his family. They go down to Egypt, and all the family members are listed. It's a long list throughout the rest of chapter 46. By the time you get to 27, he's ready to summarize, give you the total. All the souls of the house of Jacob, which came into Egypt, were threescore and ten. Now, the fact he just gave us a number lets you know it's not quite innumerable yet. But we are getting a little closer to stars of heaven and sands of the sea. The Abrahamic covenant is beginning to take shape. And the house of Israel is forming, ready to go beyond the borders of their land of promise, to find people of promise wherever they can, can look, to make sure that everyone receives the bread of life. Well, 29, Joseph makes ready his chariot. He went up to meet Israel, his father, to Goshen and presented himself unto him. Now, you want to talk about a glorious reunion. He fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. What a reunion. With thy mutual approbation, to think of what it will be like to return to heavenly parents Oh, weeping a good while, I can imagine. For all the time we spent apart in our years of wilderness wandering, our time in Egypt, but we're home now. It's so glorious. Then in verse 30, Israel says to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. Now this is a little ironic. I can die now. What, what, don't, no, no, don't, Dad, don't, don't, please. I'm just seeing you again. Oh, it's okay. I probably got a little while in me. And yeah, 17 more years. Joseph get, gets to double the time spent with father. Well, the way Israel puts it, as long as you're alive, I can die. Even more than time spent together, 
I'm just so relieved you have a future. And I can, I can end my, my life in peace. You remember from the very beginning, it was that role reversal that he was willing to offer. And I'm still, the offer is still good. You, I will die as long as you can live. And there's the promise right there. Well, 31 then, Joseph says to his brethren and to his father's house, I'll go up and show Pharaoh. I'll say to him, my brethren, my father's house, which are in the land of Canaan, are come unto me. And then the chapter ends with a bit of a strange conversation as Joseph says, okay, I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh. But when he meets you, he's probably going to ask you what your occupation is. I mean, Pharaoh likes to put people to work. Uh, and I've been working hard, but it's good work. Okay. Uh, foreshadowing of worse work to come, perhaps. But what's your occupation? Tell them that you work with cattle. And then he says this interesting, strange thing at the very end. He says, for every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. Now, I don't know if he means, if he's quibbling over, like, what kind of animal we're talking about. Because if you're over cattle, it's, you're a herdsman. Is that better than being a shepherd? Is there something wrong with sheep as opposed to other animals? I don't fully understand. Or is it something that, more symbolic for us, you and me, relevance, that people in Egyptian employ, people that do the world's work, often tend to look down their noses at mere shepherds. What, what? You feed the flock? You gather lost sheep? Well, what kind of profit margin is there in that? Now, we're talking house of Israel. We're talking family business. We're talking Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, house of Israel. Yes, we're shepherds, called to be. Yes, we are gatherers of lost sheep and there's good job security there because people see, always seem to be getting lost. And who cares what the world thinks of that kind of selfless service? Oh, yeah. You'll never <laughs> rise in Pharaoh's ranks. Well, maybe you will. Joseph did. It's not the kind of work that the world puts a high premium on. And that's okay. We get to gather the Lord's other sheep. We get to give away his grain. We get to serve and lift and help and bless. And there's nothing better than the family business. I feel that deeply. I'm so honored to be a shepherd, no matter how abominable that might seem to those that are looking for for different forms of wealth. Oh, the riches of eternity are God's to give. And it's a beautiful work to be engaged in. Sure enough, 47, it happens as, just as Joseph explained. He goes to Pharaoh, talks about, the family's here. I brought some brothers to meet you. And Pharaoh, sure enough, asks, so what's your occupation? And they said unto Pharaoh, thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. So they're, they're obviously not concerned about quibbling over what kind of livestock it is. Oh, cattle? Nah. If you have a problem with sheep, so be it. Uh, that's what we do. We're shepherds. And perhaps surprisingly, Pharaoh's totally okay with that. Shepherds. Oh, that's good. Great. It doesn't seem, maybe he doesn't know that, that, <laughs> that shepherding is so far beneath him. He, he doesn't bat an eye. 
In fact, the way he responds to them is so beautiful. He says, the land of Egypt is before thee. In the best of the land, make thy father and brethren to dwell. In the land of Goshen, let them dwell. And if thou knowest any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. In fact, I'll give you a job in my own kingdom. Uh, your herdsmen, wonderful. I could use a little help there. And you can, you can help herd my cattle. There's something about this Pharaoh as opposed to the Pharaohs we'll meet in the book of Exodus. And all the Pharaohs that, that were such harsh taskmasters to the Israelites living in their midst. This first one, probably because he knows Joseph so well, treats Joseph's people so well. What kind of a Pharaoh will you and I be if we have home court advantage and some oh, dispossessed or displaced or discouraged people come in? It's been beautiful for me to watch my son's experience on his service mission with refugee populations. And my sister-in-law is heavily involved in the same kind of work. There's some sisters in our ward that I'm so amazed by because they're constantly looking for ways to bless refugees. And that, in a way, is what Jacob's family has now become there in Egypt. And it's not a matter of, oh, keep them away and keep them down. It's, no, can we give you the best of our land? Can we help you find jobs according to your skill set or your interest, your background? Can we make this new land feel as much like home to you as we can? Fresh start, new beginning, new life, and that can be hard. Is there anything we can do to make it a little bit easier for you? And that's what this Pharaoh does. Well, verse 7, Joseph brought in Jacob his father and set him before Pharaoh. This would be such a cool, uh, to be a fly on the wall and watch this. Because Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Makes you wonder, wait, who's in charge here? <laughs> Who outranks whom? Here is Pharaoh, the, the mightiest man on earth, basically. Physically, maybe. Politically, perhaps. But spiritually, here comes his spiritual superior. Here is Israel. He who prevailed with God and lets God prevail with him. Let me bless you, my son, <laughs> Pharaoh. Pharaoh says to Jacob, How old art thou? And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, Oh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are an hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been, and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Now, few and evil, evil is better translated as unpleasant, as difficult, as hard. I'm only 130, not too old, far younger than my ancestors. And my life has been hard. I've lost loved ones. I've I spent so many years away from my parents, away from my brother, and now so many years away from this beloved son. It's been hard, but I'm here, still alive and kicking. And I'm grateful to God for the chance. I do love that, that, that he compares himself to his forefathers that Jacob is looking back to Isaac and to Abraham and says, yeah, my life probably doesn't quite measure up to theirs. How could it? And yet I think it does. The things he's gone through, the, the type of life he's lived, and the, 
the tribes that he is, has given birth to, to begin extending the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to all the world. There's this great scene at the end of Lord of the Rings. And yes, I've read the books, and yes, the books are always better than the movies, but this is one occasion where Peter Jackson got it right uh, and even did one up on, on Tolkien. Because when Theoden, king of the Rohirrim, dies in battle, having helped to conquer the enemy, as he lay dying, he turns to his daughter, who really saved the day, and says to her, I go to my fathers, in whose mighty company I shall not now feel ashamed. So beautiful. And I get a sense from Jacob that there's something similar. I, will I ever measure up to my mighty fathers? Well, yes. And he does not have to be ashamed in their presence. In verse 12, then, Joseph's family settles in. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and his father's household with bread, according to their families. Fitting that Joseph would do that. That is the burden of the birthright. That is the mission, the family business. And start with the family itself and make sure all the brothers are well fed so then they can go forth and make sure everyone else is too. Verse 13, there was no bread in all the land for the famine was very sore so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. Now, we just zoomed out. We've been so focused on Joseph's family and Jacob's family and everyone coming together that we kind of lost sight of the fact that People are starving everywhere. And Joseph still has a job to do to make sure that everyone is fed. This in some ways is like Amos chapter 8 and this famine in the land. Not thirst for water or famine for bread, but hunger after the word of God. And with that in mind, I want you to take that to the rest of chapter 47. It can be summed up pretty briefly. Because the rest of 47 is Joseph making sure that everybody gets their food. But the challenge is they're running out of ways to purchase it. And so to me, it's, it teaches a beautiful lesson on how much is the bread of life worth to us. I mean, I suppose that these hungry Egyptians or hungry surrounding civilizations could have said, no, that's, that's way too high. That's an exorbitant price. I won't pay. Okay, fine. Then starve. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Wow, what a deal. Um, I'll give anything to preserve my life. And they end up giving everything to preserve their life. Where it begins is verse 14, they give all their money. But not only did the money run out, so did the food. And now how are we going to obtain it? So now what? Verse 16, Joseph says, well, you could give me your cattle. I'll take flocks and herds. In fact, I know a lot of people who are willing to to help <laughs> with the king's flocks. And so we, we could purchase, that. how's that for a transaction? We'll continue to give you food and you can give us your cattle. And so they do, and still the question, well, now what? So verse 19, buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants unto Pharaoh. I mean, I've got nothing else to give you. I've given you my money, I've given you the rest of my possessions, and all that's left is the land I live on and, and me. And Joseph says, okay, that's, I'll take that too. And we'll, we now possess all the land of Egypt. And in some ways, everyone has now put themselves into indentured servitude because they have to eat to live. 
Joseph has by then bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, and yet the people are still hungry. So what does he do next? He gives them seed to sow. I'll tell you what, I will help you. And whatever you can grow, you can subsist upon 80%. And then in the increase, he says in verse 24, you shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh. Keep the rest to feed yourself. Now, verse 25, they said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. They are grateful. It's not that, that Joseph is trying to fleece them. He's a, a good shepherd. Okay? Their fleece matters. The flock matters. But so does food to them, and to have any way to access it, to obtain it. It's worth anything and everything I can give. Now, like I said, if we compare this to the famine for the word of God or feasting upon the words of Christ, what are we willing to give? Again, I'm preaching to the choir. You've been hanging with me all this time. And I hope that you sense that that is evidence of the worth of the word because we give up so much to obtain it. Because without it, I will spiritually starve. I need the bread of life. So Joseph, what does it take to obtain it? More of my time, more of my efforts, more consecration on my part, I'm happy to give. I will give all I have since God is giving all he has to me. Well, by the end of chapter 47 then, Israel and his family grow. They prosper in the land of Egypt. Like I said, 17 years have passed. And by the time you get to verse 29, the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight. There again is role reversal. Son, have I found grace in thy sight? Then put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. Last time that phrase was used, Joseph Smith changed it to hand under my hand. So maybe that's the same thing here. And deal kindly and truly with me. That's the same phrase that Abraham's servant used. Be kind, yeah, but be true, be honest, okay? Will you do the, both of those for me? Because here's what I'm asking for, son. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. Don't get me wrong, so grateful to be here. <laughs> Way more food here than back in Canaan. But I just don't want to stay here forever. I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. I want to be buried with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah. And Joseph says, I will do as thou hast said. Jacob asks again, swear to me. And sure enough, Joseph swore to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. Now, I don't care how long we need to spend in Egypt. I just don't want it to be permanent. As we navigate mortality, there will be times we have to find passage into Egypt or have a, a passport to, to get into Babylon or even pass through Sodom and Gomorrah on occasion. But our, our membership, our real citizenship needs to remain in the promised land, in Zion, in Israel. And so bury me there. That's, that's my permanent resting place. Now, yes, I'm about to die, but 
it's not just my final request I'm giving. There's some final blessings I want to give. And that's where chapter 48 and 49 come in. These, these are beautiful chapters. And 48 is a focus on the birthright. He's going to bless Joseph by blessing his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And then 49, he's going to bless all the rest of his children. And it's the closest thing we'll see to patriarchal blessings upon these patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. Really fascinating stuff. But starting in verse 1 of 48, it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now notice how they were listed in that order. And that's the right order, because that's birth order. Manasseh was the firstborn. Ephraim was the secondborn. And so here's Joseph. He hears his father is sick, perhaps dying. I need to make sure my sons know their grandfather and receive a blessing at his hand. It was such a beautiful thing to watch my oldest son, Jacob, meet his great-grandparents. If I remember correctly, for the first and last time in his life, how little he was as we went to visit, to just remember him putting his hands in the hands of his great-grandmother, who was blind by then. And you know how sometimes little children can be a little afraid of a stranger, especially one who's really old. There was none of that in Jacob. There was just this sense of, I don't know what, I can't even describe it. It was so beautiful as a father just to see this, this love between the generations um, flowing unabated in both directions. It was a powerful experience for me. And to picture Joseph wanting a similar experience for his sons with his father before he died. Now, I don't know how soon before uh, Jacob's death this is. Because if you do the math, he lives with them in Egypt for 17 years. And Manasseh and Ephraim were born during the years of plenty. This is before even the seven years when he got here two years in. And so he carried the one. I mean, are Manasseh and Ephraim in there like, are they around 20 by now? The math would suggest that. Then again, if this is early on and he's sick, but then he got better and, and he went on living after, then they could be really little boys. And it's hard to tell because if this is all chronological, then it does seem like they're older young adults. But the way it's described here, they really seem little. Look at, and you'll see what I mean. In verse 2, one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee. And Israel strengthened himself, sat upon the bed. Okay, he probably knows he's come for a blessing. And I want to... Be on my A-game. If you're ever asked to give a blessing, if you're ever asked to give a lesson or give a talk or to serve someone, do you try to strengthen yourself first? Seek God's strength so you can truly strengthen those that you're serving? Jacob's doing that. Verse 3, he then says to Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee and I will make of thee a multitude of people and will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. Hmm, fruitful and multiply, there's posterity. This land, there's promised land. God Almighty appeared and blessed me. Oh, there's priesthood power, authority, all that goes with it. This is Abrahamic covenant. And Jacob is telling his son Joseph just as God covenanted with Abraham and with Isaac and personally with me. You see where I'm going? It's your turn, Joseph. 
In fact, it's your son's turn, Manasseh and Ephraim. This is like Alma sharing his conversion story with Helaman and Shiblon and Corianton. I want you to know where these blessings come from, son, because they mean everything. Now, in verse 5, we begin seeing Joseph Smith's translation add some incredible insight to what we see in the text. Much of what I'll say in these next few verses is Joseph's inspired additions. So, verse 5, complete with JST. Now, of thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, now notice how he said it. <laughs> Earlier it was dad, I mean, dad's bringing them in, Manasseh and Ephraim. And then grandpa sees and says, ah, yes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, okay, you're getting the birth order wrong. Oh, I'm getting something else right. He says, thy two sons, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt, before I came unto thee into Egypt, behold, they are mine. And the God of my fathers shall bless them, even as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be blessed. For they are mine, wherefore they shall be called after my name. Therefore they were called Israel. Now, what he's saying there, especially with Joseph's inspired additions, I want God to bless these boys. And in a way for them to take the place of Reuben and Simeon, who are my firstborn sons. I want them to be called after my name even more than after yours, Joseph, I am elevating them a generation so that in essence they become my sons even more than yours, that they rise to, to be on the same level as their uncles. And in fact, above their uncles. Like I said, Reuben and Simeon are first. Look at, look at the next verse. Verse 6, with JST. Thy issue which thou begettest after them shall be thine and shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. In the tribes, Joseph adds. Therefore they were called the tribes of Manasseh and of Ephraim. And that whole addition really clarifies things. We're talking tribes here. Like I said, elevate them to the level of their uncles. Now this is where the math can come in handy and what birthright is all about. Remember the birthright gets a double portion? The fact that Jacob received the birthright means that if dad were to divide not just into two parts, one for Jacob, one for Esau, but to three parts, and Esau gets one part and Jacob gets two. That's the double portion. And with that additional portion, you're responsible for everyone else in the family that needs your help. You better hope a double portion is enough. It's not because you're better. It's because you have more work to do, more responsibility, more people to feed, and more flocks to gather. Well, in Jacob's case, he has 12 sons. But to do the math, you add another, make it 13, and then divide everything up into 13 parts, and Joseph gets two of them. Well, God made this easy, because Joseph, you have two sons. So if instead of just giving you two parts, let's give each of your two sons a part on par with their uncles. So yeah, technically we'll have 13 tribes, but well, we'll give Levi the priesthood later and kind of remove him from the list of of land inheritances, and so we're back to 12. Is good enough? You see what he's saying there? Now we get the tribe, instead of the tribe of Joseph, we'll get the two tribes of Joseph, double portion, namely a tribe of Ephraim and a tribe, a tribe of Manasseh. So verse 7, JST, and this is only JST, Jacob said unto Joseph, when the God of my fathers appeared unto me in Luz, in the land of Canaan, he swear unto me that he would give unto me and unto my seed the land for an everlasting possession. So here's the importance of a homeland, a, a land of promise. 
And all of these tribes will receive inheritances there, including your two sons, not just one for you, but one for each of them. Then verse 8, JST only. Therefore of my son, he hath blessed me in raising thee up to be a servant unto me, in saving my house from death. God has raised you up to be my servant? No, he's raised you up to be chief, but oh yeah, chief is servant of all. So yes, you are servant to the household of faith. And as birthright son, that's your responsibility, to serve, to save. It's exactly what you've been doing. Just keep it up. Verse 9, JST, In delivering my people, thy brethren, from famine, which was sore in the land, wherefore the God of thy fathers shall bless thee, and the fruit of thy loins, that they shall be blessed above thy brethren and above thy father's house. So blessed above in order to serve beneath, lifting everyone higher. Verse 10's JST, For thou hast prevailed, there's Israel for you, and thy father's house hath bowed down unto thee, even as it was shown unto thee. There's Israel remembering Joseph's dreams, right? Even all these years later. So just as it was shown thee, before thou wast sold into Egypt by the hands of thy brethren. So by now it's obvious he knows the full story. Wherefore thy brethren shall bow down unto thee from generation to generation, unto the fruit of thy loins forever. Verse 11's JST, For thou shalt be a light unto my people, to deliver them in the days of their captivity from bondage, and to bring salvation unto them when they are altogether bowed down under sin. That is the purpose of a chosen people. Go choose everyone else. Ye are the light of the world, so go shine in darkness. I've given you the keys, so turn them on behalf of the rest of captive humanity and bring them out of bondage. Deliver them. You get this kind of foreshadowing of Moses here? We'll see more of that in a moment. Verse 7 then, now we're off the JST and we're back to the King James. And verse 7 tells us, As for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan in the way. When yet there was but a little way to come unto Ephrath, and I buried her there in the way of Ephrath. The same as Bethlehem. You sense that he still misses her? That he had to leave behind Rachel's house of bread, Bethlehem. But now he finds himself in Joseph's house of bread in Egypt. Oh, you really have filled a hole in my heart, son. And you'll be able to fill whatever is missing in people for the rest of, the rest of time. That's what the gospel does. It fills holes. It heals wounds. It delivers captives. It feeds the hungry. And that's the work that we get to be engaged in. Well, after explaining all of this to Joseph, Jacob then turns to these boys. That at least the way it's described here sure seemed little. Because it says in verse 8, He beheld Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? Now, that's a rhetorical question. It's asked in joy. It's like, who are these boys? Oh, I never thought I'd see my son, let alone his sons. Get over here, boys. Verse 9, Joseph said unto his father, These are my sons, whom God hath given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray thee, unto me, and I will bless them. Now, verse 10, The eyes of Israel were dim for age. Sound a little like Jacob's father Isaac? 
when it was time for him to give his sons blessings and couldn't quite see who was who? Well, Israel's eyes are dim so that he could not see and he brought them near unto him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said unto Joseph, I had not thought to see thy face and lo, God hath showed me also thy seed. This is better than I'd even imagine. This is posterity of my posterity. Stars and sand indeed. I get that sense from my own parents as they're rejoicing over grandparenthood. I look forward to those days myself. Don't be too fast, my own children. Okay, find the right one. Okay, covenant companion. Then verse 12, Joseph brought them out from between his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. That's why I wonder, between his knees? I don't picture 20-year-olds kind of hiding behind dad, like who is this guy? But I do picture little boys. In fact, maybe this isn't such a rhetorical question. Maybe this is out of chronological order here, and this is one of the first things that happens, and, and Israel is just having a, a rough day physically, and so needs to bless these boys before it's too late. And then he lives to be able to spend the next 17 years with them. Again, I don't know the chronology well enough. It's not clear. But to bring them out from between his knees, and then verse 13, Joseph took them both. Now, you've got to picture this in your head. Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand. So he's facing his father coming towards him. So Ephraim, you're on my right hand because you've got to be on my father's left hand because you're the youngest of the two. Okay, stay right there. And Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near unto him. So dad, okay, they're right in front of you. You don't have to see them, okay? Um, just put your hands up and out and, and on their heads and I've got it all set up for you, okay? Elders at your right hand, youngers at your left hand. We're good to go. Verse 14 then, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, even though Ephraim was on his left. And that's wrong because as it says in the very next line, who was the younger? No, no, that's not how you're supposed to do it, Dad. Meanwhile, his left hand is upon Manasseh's head. So can you picture this in your mind that he's, he extends? I mean, J Joseph has been so deliberate here. Okay, right hand, left hand. Come on, boys. Coax them out from between his knees. And Okay, you stand right here. Stand right there. Quit hitting your brother. Um, okay, there we are. Dad, we're ready for you. And then Dad, you picture everybody folding their arms and closing their eyes and bowing their head. And then Dad extends his arm, crosses them, and lays his hands upon their head. We'll see in a minute that I do believe that everybody's eyes are closed. Uh, but it says right there in the middle of 14... He guided his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So Jacob knows exactly what he's doing, which stands to reason. It's like, um, no, there's nothing wrong here. After all, I am the secondborn but birthright son of a secondborn but birthright son. <laughs> Abraham chose Isaac, not Ishmael. I should say God did. God through Isaac chose me, Jacob, not my elder brother Esau. I mean, come on, Joseph, you're number 11, and you're still birthright son. But here again is that instance of a younger being birthright over the older. Now, we don't know why, especially if they're young. I don't think Manasseh's done anything to disqualify himself. But, but Jacob does this wittingly. He knows where the blessing is supposed to go. In fact, it's so interesting that 
it's it's hard to even find an example where the oldest ends up with the birthright he was supposed to have from the beginning. It, Cain was older, but Abel received the blessing. Uh, I already mentioned Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau and Joseph over Reuben. We see Nephi over Laman. It's, you're hard-pressed to think of one, which lets you know that might be a reason for that. That if there was ever anyone who fully lived up to his birthright as eldest son, it was Jesus. He's the exception that proves the rule that all of us fall short. That none of us, no matter where you happen, when you happen to be born, whatever the birth order, none of us are truly deserving of birthright status. But Jesus is. And through him, we can become worthy of those blessings ourselves. Well, here's Joseph, excuse me, Jacob, guiding his hands wittingly, and then begins the blessing. Verse 15, it says he blessed Joseph, even though he's technically blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, any blessing to my children would be a blessing to me, believe me. And Jacob says, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did, did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, whether that was in Haran or in Canaan or here in Egypt, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, one I wrestled with at the base of the ladder. God, bless the lads. Let my name be named on them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. You see him now passing down the Abrahamic covenant. God, you've been with me and with my father and with my grandfather. Will you now be with my son and with his sons? You see the generations laid out in that beautiful verse? The name of God being passed down throughout them? Growing into a multitude to bless all the families of the earth? Well, verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim. So there I wonder, like, wait, did you peek in the middle of the blessing? So they're going, wow, Abraham, Isaac, my boys. Oh, my boys, I wonder if they're, they're, they're fidgeting down there, right? And he, there he is, arms folded, eyes closed, head bowed. But then he peeks and he looks and there's dad with his arms crossed. And Joseph's like, no, 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 dad, you understand how deliberate I was? I did it on purpose. And dad's like, I know, and I did this on purpose too. Oh, my, my eyesight may be failing, but my spiritual vision has never been more clear. I know exactly what I'm doing here. So, leave my hands alone. <laughs> when Joseph saw it, it displeased him. He held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. He's interrupting the blessing, like, no, no, down, picking up this, this hand and moving it over. Joseph said to his father, not so, my father. This is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. But his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people, just like Ishmael became a people, just like Esau became a people. He shall also be great, Manasseh will. He has a glorious future, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. Again, we don't know why, but there will be something about Ephraim that God is choosing them 
and multiplying them into a multitude of nations that can then go and gather the rest of the family home. That's what the birthright blessing is all about. Ephraim first, and gathering in Manasseh, we see, we see that in the early history of the church as people from the British Isles, people from Europe, Northern Europe, flock into the kingdom. Ephraimites. Joseph Smith, an Ephraimite. You see then the kingdom spread, especially among the, ancestor, the descendants of Lehi. There's Manasseh. Lehi was from Manasseh. And to see the Lamanite mission right off the bat, to see the church growing by leaps and bounds in Latin America, so many of whom in their patriarchal blessings come from the tribe of Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh, it's like 1A and 1B, Joseph's tribes, birthright blessing, double portion, a multitude of nations coming into the kingdom of God with the responsibility to bring the rest of the family and from there bring all the families of the earth. Choose all to be chosen with you. Well, verse 20, Jacob blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. 21, Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die. But God shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren. There's the double portion. There's the two tribes instead of one which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. And with that, we see a nod to the conquest of Canaan that Jacob must have been engaged in to a certain degree to settle there in the first place. And that we'll see to a much larger degree when all of these boys grow up to be tribes of their own and, and entering the promised land when the iniquity of those same Amorites is full. Well, turn the page then in chapter 49, the blessings will extend beyond that birthright uh, to all of those leaders of what would become the house of Israel. Now, verse 1, Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto your father. Now, this is as close to patriarchal blessings as we'll see in the Old Testament. There is one other place, and that's Deuteronomy 33. In fact, the way I remember it is it's the second... Well, Genesis and Deuteronomy are the bookends of the books of Moses. Genesis is the beginning. Deuteronomy is the last. And the second to last chapter of each book contains these kinds of patriarchal blessings for the 12 tribes. So Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 33. Okay? And in Genesis 39, it's Jacob blessing his 12 sons... And in Deuteronomy 33, it's Moses blessing the leaders of the 12 tribes. But this is the closest we come to seeing what a tribal inheritance or a tribal lineage as far as patriarchal blessings are concerned. As best, this is as close as we can come in Scripture. Now, that's good. It's also a little unsatisfying, unfortunately, in a couple of ways. If you're from a tribe of Joseph or the tribe of Judah, then congratulations, you can get quite a bit out of these verses. If you're from any of the other tribes, these little blessings often leave something to be desired. And I'm sorry. I wish, I have met students over the years that have said, kind of almost under their breath when the other students leave, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, or I'm from the tribe of Levi. What does that mean? 
Now, Levi is another one you can be a little more clear on because of priesthood, as we'll see throughout the remainder of the Old Testament. But to that poor, not poor, that's the wrong word, but to that student who said, I'm from Benjamin, I have a hard time knowing what to say because Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 33 don't help me a ton. Now, there's also something to be said about those other tribes. Because I've learned over my years of working with teenagers, it, oh, they're an interesting lot. Because there are some that when they get their blessing and they're like, I'm from Ephraim. And they're like, I am an Ephraimite, hear me roar. I am the birthright tribe. I must be better than my brethren. And you're like, yikes, pride from above, careful. But there's also pride from below in an interesting way. Because others are like, I'm from the tribe of Zebulun. No way, that's so cool. Because for them, it's like, I didn't want to be some cookie cutter Ephraimite. Man, though, you guys are a dime a dozen in the church. I am from an exotic tribe. And if Ephraimites are guilty from, of pride from above, then I guess that would be pride from below. And actually, you can't, it's hard to even say which is above and which is below at all. But I have noticed that if you're on one end of the spectrum, you're either stoked you're from Ephraim because you feel like you're better, and you're sad that you're not from Ephraim because then what did I do wrong? I'm not a birthright. Or it's that other, I'm not a cookie cutter, I'm exotic, and you, you're the dime a dozen. Now, both of those have some growing up to do, a little maturing. Okay. But what if it's neither pride from above nor from below, but honest confusion? I just don't understand what it means to be from the tribe of Issachar. And the, and the Old Testament doesn't help me a lot. And we'll see it as we study 49 right now, how difficult it can be if you're one, from one of those tribes that we don't get many hints here. Now, perhaps this is just ninth article of faith, part three. Many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God that will yet be revealed. In that case, bring it on. I can hardly wait to find out the blessings of Dan or Asher. But in the meantime, what do I do? This is the advice I give my students. Anytime you don't know much about dad, then look to grandpa and great-grandpa and great-great-grandpa. In other words, if you don't know much about the tribe of Naphtali, you're still house of Israel, which means your grandpa Jacob and your great-grandpa Isaac and your great-great-grandpa Abraham have passed down the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to you. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is also the God of Sarah, Rebekah, and Rachel, is your God as well. So hold to him and understand that what it means to be a member of the house of Israel, no matter what subdivision tribe you might be in, is to make sure that all the families of the earth are blessed with the three Ps, posterity, promised land, and priesthood. Help them see who they really are. If you've, especially to you youth, if you've ever gone to do baptisms for the dead, look down beneath the font, and what do you see? Oxen, strong, work animals. And where are they faced? Well, first, how many are there? There's 12, 12 tribes. They're facing which way? Always, every direction, because that's as far as the, the water needs to flow. And can you even tell which ox down there is Zebulun and which one is Simeon? I can't. They're all just sharing a common burden upon their back, and that is the burden and blessing of baptism. That's our responsibility, 
fellow Israelites, whatever tribe you or I might be a part of, go out to the four corners of the earth or the 12 directions and gather scattered Israel. And go beyond that to bring all the families of the earth, the blessings of what you bear on your back. Salvation, light to those in darkness, deliverance to those who are captives. We're doing that on both sides of the veil. And as President Nelson has said so emphatically, so repeatedly, so eloquently, it's the greatest work we could ever be involved in. That is the family business. And it's the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob no matter what tribe you specifically come from. I was thinking about this with my own sons. My oldest, Jacob, is the firstborn son of a firstborn son of a firstborn son. There's birthright for you. Well, does that mean he's better than my other son or my daughters? Not at all. Does that mean that I'm more important than my brothers or sisters? Not at all. Does it mean my dad is more important than my uncles and aunts? Not at all. They're all Halversons. <laughs> They're all part of the family. Or to look at my mother's side and trace it back to those first Waldensian converts in Italy, the Malin family. First family to join the church in Italy. And I'm not, well, I'll put it this way. I'm as much a Malin as anyone who still has the last name. My line just always goes through the daughters and it, the last name switched practically every generation. So we need to be careful about how we approach birthright uh, and as far as specific tribal lineages are concerned. Okay, I, I hope that helps those that can't be helped much by Genesis chapter 49. But let's get back to Genesis 49. Verse 3 and 4 is the blessing for Reuben. And it starts well and ends not so well, if you know Reuben's history. Reuben, he says, thou art my firstborn which means you should have been my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. In other words, preeminence in those areas. At least it's what you should have been. But this next verse, unstable as water, thou shalt not excel because thou wentest up to thy father's bed. Then defilest thou it. He went up to my couch. We saw that story earlier. And the disqualification of the birthright on, on Reuben's account. Now, if you're from the tribe of Reuben, don't forget the second article of faith. That you're not punished for Adam's transgression. Well, you're certainly not going to be punished for Reuben's sin. Maybe what we're supposed to get from this is, is the dichotomy of strengths and weaknesses. Because Reuben had strengths. We saw a lot of them today. And weaknesses, we saw some last week, and with what he did with Bilhah, his father's concubine. I wonder when it comes to our own patriarchal blessings, are we, are we looking? I mean, remember what, what, uh, what Jacob said at the very beginning of this chapter. I'm going to tell you what shall befall you in the last days. That's a great description of a patriarchal blessing. Let me give you a hint as to what God has in store. And part of that will be strengths and blessings he has promised. But also some of that might be warnings against potential pitfalls or propensities. And that's why he says, make sure you hear and hearken to what I'm about to say. So not just for Reubenites, and not just for Reuben alone, but for all of us, are we aware of the strengths and weaknesses that are part and parcel of our character? I think that's something worth looking to. 
And again, back to the actual text here, excellency of dignity, that seems to be spiritual preeminence, like priesthood. And excellency of power, that seems to suggest political preeminence, like kingship. And Reuben, it was all meant to be yours. Instead, political preeminence, that power, will go to Judah. Uh, excellency of dignity, spiritual preeminence, will go to, to Joseph. Priesthood itself will go to Levi. It's interesting that he's going to subdivide all these and pass them out to other, to other tribes. Now, speaking of Levi and his older brother Simeon, these two always seem to go together. They at least went to Shechem and massacred the place together. And so here they're associated in verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O oh, my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man. In their self-will they dig down a wall. Other translations there say they hewed an ox or they crippled cattle. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now again, we could see in that weaknesses we should be aware of, propensities we should guard against, or mistakes we should learn from. The blessings we receive from God can help us with all of that. But I also wonder if by associating the two and talking about their assembly or their secret, there was something about this was a bad combination. And in fact, in the tribal inheritances, Simeon would be separated out away from most of the other tribes. And Levi wouldn't even associate together with themselves in one simple uh, uh, inheritance as far as land. They're scattered throughout all the tribes of Israel. Now, that seems to suggest for the end there. I'll divide them in Jacob. Simeon, you're off to your own. And scatter them in Israel. That's Levites scattered throughout. But again, as far as relevance to ourselves is concerned, I wonder if we should be looking in the blessings that God gives to us, cautions as far as who we associate with. Yes, we're supposed to be in the world to bless the world, but beware of becoming so of the world that it starts to dilute your own discipleship, that you start to misunderstand what tokens of covenants are all about, and we end up being more self-serving than self-sacrificial. There were some of the problems of Simeon and Levi. Now, verse 8 through 12 is the blessing to Judah. And again, if you are from the tribe of Judah, this one actually helps because there's a lot here. Judah, he says, and we saw so many amazing examples of what Judah was willing to do this, in this week's material. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Remember, that's what Judah means is praise. He'll have that political preeminence. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. There's military might, like King David of the tribe of Judah. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Again, there's political rule. Judah is a lion's whelp. In the book of Revelation, Jesus would be referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so the blessing goes on about this lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh is a tricky one to translate. Most suggest that it means something along the lines of him whose right it is. 
It's like when he asked that question. Here's, here's Judah, this lion, but at some point it's an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? Well, that sounds like Christ reinfusing the house of Israel with power. A Messiah who has come to roar sin and death into submission. There is Shiloh. Christ is the one whose right it truly is. But finally, the oldest who lives up to birthright, right? Uh, in fact, if you start to see that imagery pointing to Jesus at the end of verse 10, see it more clearly, atonement centered in 11 and 12. Binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. And that sounds like foal and ass's colt. There's triumphal entry. Vine, well, there's Gethsemane. Sure enough, next line, he washed his garments in wine. Sound like trotting the wine press alone? His clothes in the blood of grapes? Now it becomes more obvious. It's not just grape juice, it's blood staining his raiment. His eyes shall be red with wine, his teeth white with milk. So many types and shadows of Christ there in this patriarchal blessing for Judah most important one of your descendants to ever come. With triumphal entry and Gethsemane and Golgotha and, and red and white, scarlet sin becoming white as snow. Him whose right it is, oh yes, the lion of the tribe of Judah will come. Well, verse 13, we're back to tribes we don't understand very well. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea. He shall be for an haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. Well, Zebulun did end up being a northern tribe that kind of connected the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean. Haven of ships, perhaps. On the borders of Tyre and Sidon, there's close to what Jacob is saying there as well. Is it a matter of how open to the outside versus how close to home you ought to be? I've sought for blessings along those lines at times. Clarification. Should I be looking for ships to sail or, or soil to till? Uh, do I move? Do I stay? Where do I go? Where do I take my family? In verse 14 and 15, how's this for Issachar? Issachar is a strong ass couching down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and the land that it was pleasant and bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant unto tribute. Is this more a nod toward one's occupation? This strong donkey ready to lift the burden that he's bearing, bowing his shoulder to bear? There's a spiritual gift for you, the gift of work. What should I be when I grow up? Where can I place my strength? Verse 16 to 18 is Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. So this is not a second-class tribe just because Dan came from one of Israel's concubines. No, he's on the level with everyone else. No second-class citizens. Dan shall be a serpent, by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels so that his rider shall fall backwards. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Seems to suggest a level of military strength in Dan. Samson came from Dan. And yes, riders falling backwards, him biting at the horse heels. Those are spiritual gifts too. 
to wield the sword, to defend the faith, to judge and make righteous judgment. In verse 19, Gad, a troop, that's what his name means, shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. There's another nod toward military might, but it suggests these ups and downs of failures as well as successes. You will be overcome on occasion, but at last you will be the one overcoming. And I hope the blessings that God gives us, gives us that kind of hope to keep trying to pick yourself up and dust yourself off. And if you've been overcome, then turn around and go overcome in the future. In verse 20, out of Asher, his bread shall be fat. He shall yield royal dainties. That suggests more of a temporal prosperity. And sure enough, Asher did settle in a very productive area of the promised land. I remember that phrase in the Doctrine and Covenants when Joseph Smith is told, Oh, I'll bless you in spiritual things. Temporal things, yeah, not so much. And <laughs> there are those that are blessed with fat bread and royal dainties. What will you do with that? Will you be generous with the other tribes that aren't blessed along those lines? In verse 21, Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. I wonder about personality traits. You know people that seem a lot like hinds let loose? That hears like a mountain goat or some kind of sheep or antelope that's just prancing up the mountainside? There's a hind let loose. And yet he's giving goodly words. You know people that just are so energetic? They're extroverts. They always got incredible words to say and energy to give. Some of these tribes, or some of these leaders of tribes, these sons of Jacob, are more, no, settle in and, and bear the burden. Uh, you've got these, you've got work to be done. Well, I'm grateful for those that will do the work, but also grateful for those that bring in the fun. And we all have spiritual gifts. I mean, reread 1 Corinthians 12 and DNC 46 and Moroni 10. And it seems like every book of Scripture wants to make sure we understand gifts of the Spirit. And we all have different ones, but... We're all members of the same body. And the eye doesn't say to the ear, I don't need you. We're all important here. Every tribe, every gift. We then see more clarity on the tribe of Joseph. We saw blessings given to Ephraim and Manasseh last chapter. Now here in a more general sense. So it includes the two of them. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough. Even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. Most people in the church, at least, interpret that to be, there's the posterity of Lehi, which is tribe of Manasseh, that is growing over the wall, namely the ocean, to become planted in a new promised land and begin spreading from there. A fruitful bough, that's for sure. Keep going in his blessing, though. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. Well, Joseph himself was sorely persecuted through most of his life. And if Ephraim and Manasseh first joined the kingdom in the latter days, then yes, a lot of arrows have been shot in our direction. How will we handle it? Hopefully as, as kindly and with as much forgiveness and grace as, as Joseph, our ancestor. But his bow abode in strength. The arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. 
So the Messiah will come from Judah. But this shepherd, a stone of Israel, will emerge from Joseph. We'll see more of that in chapter 50. The blessing goes on, verse 25, Even by the God of thy father, who shall help thee, and by the Almighty, who shall bless thee, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Now there's birthright for you. There is blessings, 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 blessings over and over repeated here. It's as if Jacob cannot be effusive enough. Why am I giving you this double portion? Why this abundance of blessings? Because they're not for you. They're meant for everyone else. Make sure they go beyond the bounds of these everlasting hills. Make sure that all the families of the earth are blessed alongside you. Now, with Joseph passed, we turn to Benjamin in 27. Another strange one of sorts. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey. At night he shall divide the spoil. That too suggests military might, but also sharing the spoils of war. And, and that's house of Israel extending the blessings that we gain from God as well. Some have even pointed out the fact that the Apostle Paul came from the tribe of Benjamin. They see in that, in the morning he devours the prey, but at night he divides the spoil. They see a, a Saul in the morning devouring Christians, but a Paul at night blessing all that he comes in contact with, dividing the spoil. Interesting fulfillment. Well, verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is it that their father spake unto them and blessed them. Everyone according to his blessing, he blessed them. So specific blessings intended for specific people and specific purposes. No need to compare or compete or criticize or complain. Beware those four S's, Rachel and Leah or Jacob and Esau or Joseph and your brethren. We're all in this together. And... The reason we have gifts at all is to cast them into the Lord's storehouse that they may become the common property of all of the church. That's DNC 82. And beautiful promises there. Verse 29, then Jacob charged them. This is rewards as well as responsibilities. And he told them, bury me with the patriarchs and with the matriarchs. Make sure I'm laid to rest with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and with Leah. Leah was buried there in the tomb of the patriarchs, that cave of Machpelah. Remember, Rachel was buried there in, in Bethlehem. And so interesting that this tender-eyed, kind-hearted, sense of inadequacy, struggling with self, Leah, is buried alongside the matriarchs and Jacob alongside the patriarchs. Interesting how it all comes together. And then the chapter ends. And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. I love that phrase for, for passing, for coming home to your ancestors, gathered unto your people. 
which then leaves us only with chapter 50 to finish the book of Genesis. Here we see Joseph. The father's gone, and so now, Joseph, it's time to step into this birthright. And though you are younger than all but Benjamin, you are chief of all. Well, don't worry, it won't take much personality change. You've been serving others from your chiefly status for years. Continue. Verse 1, now that jo Jacob is gone, Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. In the next few verses, he commands the physicians of Pharaoh to embalm his father. That way his body will be preserved long enough that they can then bring him back to Canaan and bury him where he requested. They mourn for 40 days. During that time, Joseph asks Pharaoh for permission to go to Canaan once the period of mourning has passed, and Pharaoh gladly grants it. Go and bury your father uh, where he requested. Verse 7, Joseph went up to bury his father. First time he's been back to Canaan in decades. And with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his house and all the elders of the land of Egypt and all the house of Joseph and his brethren and his father's house. There went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And they were there for seven days of mourning. Can you imagine the spectacle, the sight? Who passed away? Who is this? That even the Egyptians, the world's superpower, have come to lowly Canaan to pay their respects. Oh yes, there's something about Jacob indeed. There is a recognition on the world's part that Israel has something worth honoring, and so they do. Verse 11, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning in the floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning to the Egyptians, wherefore the name of it was called Abel Mitzrayim, which means mourning of the Egyptians. Now, verse 15, they all come back after that period of mourning to Egypt. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, this to me is where the... It's such a, a plot shift here. It's really amazing. The brothers see dad is gone. And they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. Now, you understand what is going through their mind? They've been with Joseph now for 17 years at least. And since he first revealed himself to them, he was nothing but kind, kissing them right along, kissing uh, Benjamin, blessing them, as just like he blessed Benjamin, just rolling out the red carpet, bring the whole family, settle in Goshen. And yet dad's gone. And what if the old Joseph, I mean, he spoke roughly to us when he first saw us. We did sell him into Egypt, and he hadn't forgotten that. I wonder if he was only being kind to us for father's sake. We knew we didn't want to bring his gray hairs down to the grave in sorrow. I'm sure Joseph felt even more intensely that need. And so, yeah, that's probably it. He was probably only kind to us out of compassion for father, not out of forgiveness for us. He must hate us. And now that there's no dad to hide behind, there's no one to pretend to be kind for, he's going to take out his anger on us. And we will have to pay the uttermost farthing. Now what they do then as a result is 
fascinating. This is one of my favorite parts of the, of the Joseph story, and it's one we always skip over. They're so scared of Joseph at this point, these older ten brothers, that they take a servant. They won't even go visit him themselves. They lie to the servant and plant in the servant's mouth a false deathbed request on the part of their father, Jacob. Watch how it happens. Verse 16, they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph. And again, this is all made up. There's no evidence that, Joseph, that Jacob said this, that he wanted Joseph to do this. This is just a bunch of scared brothers afraid of Joseph's vengeance. And so they're hiding behind, they're using de their deceased father as a human shield and sending this servant to go face the firing squad. And this is the, the made-up deathbed request they put in their father's mouth. Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. For they did unto thee evil, and now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. You see what they're saying? Joseph, Jacob speaks from the grave. I know what they did to you was wrong. It was a trespass. In fact, it was a sin. In fact, it was, it was downright evil of them. I understand that. But they're my sons too. Please forgive them. Please offer them mercy instead of exacting the justice that you deserve. Please, please, let your hatred be buried with me. Now, how is Joseph to react to this? In that same verse, you don't even have to end the verse. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. This to me is one of the most profound moments in the story because you see the sincerity of Joseph's heart. Because what's he realizing? If this is true and he has no reason to doubt it, this servant has come and said, your dad said something on his deathbed. A dying wish for you. And I said, of course, of course, I'll honor it. What did he want me to do? He wanted you to forgive your brothers. And Joseph immediately bursts into tears. Why? As I've tried to put myself into his place, I realize, wait a minute, dad, dad didn't know that I forgave my brothers? What more could I have done for the last 17 years to prove to them that I'm past it, that I saw God in that, that he took ashes and turned it into beauty, that, that there's no hard feelings. Father was worried about my lack of forgiveness? What have I done wrong? How could I be more emphatic that all is well? My friends, you remember when we talked about Jacob going to see Esau and being so worried that there's no way my brother will forgive me, that every prodigal son fears the older brother that's, that's described in the, in the actual parable. But what we get instead is the, is the teller of the tale, the speaker behind the, the prodigal son's story in the first place. We get Jesus who runs out to meet us, just like Esau did, 
who falls upon our necks and kisses us, just like Esau did. And now in this story, just like Joseph did, I have a feeling that, well, we talked about this earlier. The fact Joseph forgives them allows them to forgive themselves. Evidently, they haven't done it yet. And, and this is maybe even worse. Their inability to forgive themselves was such that they made it, they made Joseph unable to forgive them too. There's no way he could possibly forgive us. I can't forgive myself. He couldn't forgive us. And we start doubting mercy and forgiveness in all directions. No, Joseph gave you permission. He gave you proof. You've just doubted it all. And I worry that we do the same thing with Jesus. That he makes it abundantly clear. Over the course of a lifetime, pouring out blessing after blessing, giving us the best of the land of Egypt, why don't we accept his forgiveness? Why do we wonder and hide behind feeble requests to forgive us when he already has? Move forward. Don't tarry here. Come join me. Race toward me so we can rejoice. Because I do believe, based on Joseph's type and shadow, that whenever we give Jesus cause to question our acceptance of his grace, he weeps too. What more could I have done for my vineyard? How more obvious could I make it that you're clean? I have trodden the winepress alone. I do have the blood of grapes all over my garment, but I did it for you out of love so that scarlet sin could be white as snow, so move past it. I have. I remember it no more. I will mention it to you never again. Believe me. Please. He says through his tears. Now in verse 18, his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. Again, they're afraid of retribution. And Joseph's response, he said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? No, I, and I give God credit, not, not you blame. As for you, ye thought evil against me. Fine, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. There's so much in that verse that's worth pondering. Whenever you doubt the Lord's forgiveness, fear not. Are you in the place of God? Because you're acting like it. You're standing in the way of His grace that He's offering to you. Are you in the place of God? Quit pretending you are. God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day. In other words, Joseph realizes we, I'm right where I need to be. And you're right where you need to be. That doesn't mean the way we got here was exactly the way God wanted it. But we ended up in the right destination. God can do that. He can adjust on the fly. He can, he can bring beautiful things 
out of things we've burned down ourselves. And I trust him in all of that. My faith has allowed for my forgiveness. And if you're struggling with forgiving yourself, then Lord, increase your faith. Pray for that. God will nourish you as evidence that he still wants to bless. He will comfort you. He will speak kindly unto you. Words of glorious reassurance. Well, finally, verse 22 and 23. Joseph dwells in Egypt, lives to be 110. It's old enough to see Ephraim's children of the third generation, as well as grandchildren through Manasseh. It says that they were brought up upon Joseph's knees. So those boys that were one, at one point hiding behind or between his knees have now given him grandkids that he can, he can hold on his knees himself. Ah, oh, the glorious joys of posterity. He's living into it. And again, we are seeing the house of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and grandsons and great-grandsons, and we're off and running. We are barreling toward the book of Exodus, which will start next week. Verse 24, Joseph says to his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. You see, even he now reminding others of the Abrahamic covenant, don't get too comfortable here in Egypt. We're not meant to be here forever. There is yet a promised land beckoning us. So prepare for that. And in fact, similar to what his father said, Joseph makes sure they know I'm not to be buried here either. Which is more ironic in his case because he's, he spent 17 out of 110 years in the promised land. But that's okay. I, in, I intend to spend eternity there in the ultimate land of promise. So bury my bones there whenever you guys all come out of Egypt. That's what he says in 25 and 26 to end this book. Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so ends the book of Genesis. Or does it? At the risk of extending this lesson yet longer, there is one last thing I need to say. Because one of the more glorious Joseph Smith translation additions to the Old Testament is right here at the end of Genesis. We saw Genesis expanded by helping us see Enoch for who he really was. We, see, we saw Genesis expanded to help us see Melchizedek for who he really was. These builders of Zion. And here, as Genesis comes to a close, we see it again expanded through inspiration to see one more person that's supposed to be building Zion as well. And that is Joseph of Egypt, prophesying of Joseph of Palmyra. Another Joseph, one that would be like him. Joseph of Egypt is such a, a glorious type and shadow of Jesus Christ, but in less exalted ways, less divine ways. He's also an amazing oh, foreshadowing of a later Joseph, namely Joseph Smith. One who's been sold by many a brother. One who has been betrayed and persecuted. But one who seems to rise up no matter where he's put down. One who has done more save Jesus only to make sure that the bread of life is available to all of God's children on both sides of the veil.
And so the Joseph Smith translation, we see it echoed in the Book of Mormon. What was originally on these pages passed down onto the brass plates as Lehi is, is blessing his sons, following Jacob's example and blessing Laman and Lemuel and their posterity and Nephi and Sam and Zoram and everyone else. When he gets to Jacob, his firstborn in the wilderness, and then finally to Joseph, his, his last son. In blessing Joseph, he speaks of Joseph of Egypt. I named you after him. And speaking of names, there will yet be another Joseph, son of Joseph, no less. There's four Josephs described in 2 Nephi chapter 3. Lehi is speaking to Joseph, his son, about Joseph in Egypt, talking about a Joseph Jr., there's the third and the fourth, uh, in the latter days. And so let's finish today's lesson with this glorious Joseph Smith translation. Uh, too long to be found in the footnotes. You've got to go to the appendix for this. And comparing it to 2 Nephi 3 is a, a beautiful thing too. So verse 24 is where this Joseph Smith translation begins. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and now for the addition. And go unto my fathers. I go down to my grave with joy. Will we be able to say that? The God of my father Jacob be with you to deliver you out of affliction in the days of your bondage, which is exactly what he had done for Joseph in his bondage. For the Lord hath visited me, and I have obtained a promise of the Lord. And this is where the, the plot thickens. Here's Joseph pleading with the Lord to obtain a promise that no matter what happens in the short term, in the long term, the house of Israel must succeed. The birthright blessing, the coat of covenant, the mantle of authority must perform its saving work. So may I obtain a promise, and he does, and here it is, that out of the fruit of my loins, seed of Joseph, seed of Ephraim, the Lord God will raise up a righteous branch out of my loins. And unto thee, whom my father Jacob hath named Israel, a prophet, not the Messiah, who is called Shiloh, in other words, he whose right it is. That's going to be Judah's responsibility. But this prophet shall deliver my people out of Egypt in the days of thy bondage. Now, are we talking Moses? Yes, in his day. Are we talking Jesus? Yes, in his day. Are we talking Joseph Smith? Yes, in his day. Verse 25. Again, this is all new, all inspired. It shall come to pass that they shall be scattered again, and a branch shall be broken off and shall be carried into a far country. Ooh, there's Lehi's family. There's the, the fruitful bough growing over the wall. Nevertheless, they shall be remembered in the covenants of the Lord when the Messiah cometh. For he shall be made manifest unto them in the latter days, in the spirit of power, and shall bring them out of darkness unto light, out of hidden darkness, out of captivity unto freedom. And that's exactly what the Book of Mormon is doing for the people upon its pages. To be remembered in the covenants. Think about the Book of Mormon's title page. This book is meant to restore covenant, to remind the, this scattered branch from the house of Israel. There's so much of that sense in the Book of Mormon, especially among Lehi's immediate family. We're a branch broken off. Promised land, what are you talking about? We just got dragged out of the promised land. The only one a Jew would look to. 
No, there are yet other lands of promise. And you'll, you're going there. A scattered branch, but you will be gathered in. The Messiah will, will make sure that's the case. In the latter days, you will be brought out of darkness into light, even hidden darkness. You won't know who you are, but you'll finally see, not through a glass darkly, you'll see bright as day. You'll be brought out of captivity unto freedom. Verse 26, how will it happen? A seer shall the Lord my God raise up, who shall be a choice seer unto the fruit of my loins. Here's a prophet, seer, and revelator, specially chosen to bless the tribes of Joseph as one of the tribe of Joseph himself. And from there, bless all the house of Israel, gather them. From there, bless all the world. Oh, this choice seer. 27, thus saith the Lord God of my fathers unto me, a choice seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins, and he shall be esteemed highly among the fruit of thy loins. And unto him will I give commandment that he shall do a work for the fruit of thy loins, his brethren. And that's exactly what Joseph Smith did from first vision until Carthage jail, performing God's work, even his strange work. Verse 28, he shall bring them to the knowledge of the covenants which I have made with thy fathers, and he shall do whatsoever work I shall command him. That is the great blessing of the Book of Mormon. It's renewal and restoration of covenant theology. That's the great blessing of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's renewal of covenant theology. It's reminding us of the rainbow. It's, it's flooding the earth with truth to gather out the elect from the four quarters. It's sending these oxen in all 12 directions because of the burden on our back. In verse 29, I will make him great in mine eyes. There's the Lord's estimation of the prophet Joseph. For he shall do my work, and he shall be great like unto him whom I have said I would raise up unto you to deliver my people, O house of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. So we've got more deliverances than one. For a seer will I raise up to deliver my people out of the land of Egypt, and he shall be called Moses. Now, how's that for clarity? Clear prophecy. And by this name he shall know that he is of thy house, for he shall be nursed by the king's daughter, and shall be called his son. Powerful prophecy there. Would that have assured Moses' parents as they entrusted him to God and let him float down the Nile? Assuredly. Then verse 30, again, a seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins. Unto him will I give power to bring forth my word unto the seed of thy loins. There's the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. But notice what else he says. Not to the bringing forth of my word only, saith the Lord, but to the convincing them of my word, which shall have already gone forth among them in the last days. Joseph Smith's ministry would be a ministry of the word. Translate the Book of Mormon reveal the Doctrine and Covenants. But more than bringing forth new word, it's convincing of existing word, namely the Bible. As I said to an evangelical Christian in the, in the South, there in the Bible Belt when I first moved to Tennessee, the Book of Mormon is the best friend the Bible ever had. I know the Bible doesn't seem like it's under attack here in the Bible Belt, but it is elsewhere. And to have a second witness of scriptural truth an additional hemisphere bearing witness to the same truths God taught in the old world. Joseph Smith's mission was not to displace the Bible, but to confirm the truth of what it teaches. And that's exactly what the Book of Mormon does. 
In verse 31, wherefore the fruit of thy loins shall write. There's Book of Mormon, stick of Ephraim, as Ezekiel would call it. And the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write. Now there's the Bible, the stick of Judah, as Ezekiel will say. And that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, Book of Mormon, and also that which shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah, Bible, shall grow together. That's why I love the one-piece quad instead of the separate Bible and triple combination. It feels like it's fulfilling prophecy a little better. They will grow together. To do what? Well, to do something that neither one can do as well on its own. Notice the list. Grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines and laying down of contentions and establishing peace among the fruit of thy loins and bringing them to a knowledge of their fathers in the latter days and also to the knowledge of my covenants, saith the Lord. That's about as good a summary of the title page of the Book of Mormon as you'll get and is what the Bible and Book of Mormon jointly are meant to accomplish. In verse 32, and out of weakness shall he be made strong. And yes, Joseph had those weaknesses, just like those patriarchal blessings for the tribes of Israel showed. But out of weakness he'll be made strong, because he'll turn to the Lord. In that day when my work shall go forth among all my people, which shall restore them who are of the house of Israel in the last days. Remember we talked about this last year in the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 84 talks about the restoration of, and then fill in the blank. And we always assume, oh, the restoration of the church, right? Nope. Oh, restoration of the gospel, right? Nope. Oh, restoration of the priesthood, right? Mm, well, yeah, all those three things are restored, but what's section 84 foreground? The restoration of my people. That's what God is after. I love how it's put there. It will restore them who are of the house of Israel. It'll all happen in the last days. Yes, I will restore gospel and priesthood and church, but those are means to a greater end. What I'm really hoping to restore is my people to a right relationship with me, to a true understanding of their eternal identity and purpose. There's restoration, and it's ongoing. We're a part of it. In verse 33, that seer will I bless, and they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded and that's as true of the Carthage Greys in his day as it is of people that are slandering the prophet Joseph Smith in ours. They will be confounded. For this promise I give unto you, for I will remember you from generation to generation, and his name shall be called Joseph. And it shall be after the name of his father. And he shall be like unto you, Joseph of Egypt, for the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand shall bring my people unto salvation. Joseph of Palmyra will be like Joseph of Egypt in providing the bread of life to everyone suffering from famine in the land. Now this, that same text, like I said, appears in 2 Nephi chapter 3. Joseph saw that before he, he translated that before he revealed this in the Joseph Smith translation. And I can only imagine how Joseph must have felt as he's dictating this to Oliver Cowdery. It's like, okay, Oliver, write this. And he's just recording, revealing these, translating these amazing truths about Joseph of Egypt. And then it gets to this choice seer, choice seer. It's like, wow, who's this going to be? He's got a lot on his plate. He's going to have to accomplish amazing things. And there's going to be opposition, but it'll overcome. And 
And then it gets to this verse, and he, I picture him dictating to Oliver, and his name shall be after my name. And so it's like, oh, wow, his name will be Joseph too. Hmm, interesting. And it will be after the name of his father. Huh. So it'll be a Joseph Jr. Oh, boy. Uh, and in that moment, if he had any doubts before, it's becoming crystal clear. They knew of me. They spoke of my day and my role and my responsibility. And boy, do I have something to live up to and someone to be like. How good will I be at forgiving my betrayers? He proved really good at that. How good will I be at gathering Israel in? He proved really good at that too. How good will I be at providing the bread of life? Here we are still feasting upon it. Well, verse 34. The Lord sware unto Joseph that he would preserve his seed forever, saying, I will raise up Moses, and a rod shall be in his hand, and he shall gather together my people, and he shall lead them as a flock. He shall smite the waters of the Red Sea with his rod. I'm sure that was a comforting promise to Moses when he reached the Red Sea. But someone to lead a flock, someone with a staff, a shepherd's staff. Oh, there's Joseph for you. There's the family of the faith. There's Joseph Smith. There's all of us, shepherds of Israel. Moses is every one. Then verse 35, he shall have judgment and shall write the word of the Lord. He shall not speak many words, for I will write unto him my law by the finger of mine own hand, and I will make a spokesman for him, and his name shall be called Aaron. So there we're speaking of Moses, but just like Joseph Smith's the second Joseph of Egypt, Joseph Smith's also a second Moses. And yeah, he didn't speak that much, comparatively speaking. Didn't have to, since God wrote so many words for him, just like was the case with Moses. And didn't have to because God raised up spokesmen for him as well. Moses had his Aaron. Joseph Smith had his Oliver Cowdery and then his Sidney Rigdon. Interesting parallels here. Uh, you could add Parley P. Pratt to that list. There's, there's a lot. But then Joseph's addition ends with 36 and 37. It shall be done unto thee in the last days also, even as I have sworn. So this is a last day fulfillment of an ancient day prophecy. And then finally, Joseph confirmed many other things unto his brethren. He didn't just tell them. He confirmed them unto them. You can bank on this. We have God's word on it. And he is the word of God. Joseph trusted that. He'd always had faith. Faith enough to forgive. Faith enough to have hope against hope. Faith in a future that he knew would be glorious. In fact, two other phrases in the 2 Nephi 3 version of all of this that we don't find in the Joseph Smith translation here, but they were things that Joseph of Egypt said in the midst of all of this prophesying. And I love it. He repeats the same thing twice, and it's meant to rivet our attention with that repetition. 2 Nephi 3.14, and then again in verse 16. In the midst of all of this promise and prophecy, Joseph of Egypt looking ahead to our day, says, Behold, I am sure of the fulfilling of this promise. Yea, thus prophesied Joseph, I am sure of this thing. My friends, 
I pray that we can say the same. That as we ponder the experience of Joseph these past two weeks, and hopefully even more importantly, as we ponder our own role in fulfilling these glorious promises, in stepping in to our roles as members of the house of Israel, that we can see God's hand throughout it all, see the promise of a coming seer, preparing the earth for the promise of a coming Messiah, and that we can be sure of these things. I testify out of the sincerity of my own heart and the spiritual experiences that God has given me. I testify of the glory of the work God has laid out for us to do. Shepherds in Israel, every one of us, I testify of the promise of Joseph Smith that his work would be in restoring truth so that God could restore his people. I am grateful for that testimony that has seen me through so many dark days. My testimony of truth, of Book of Mormon and Bible, my testimony of prophets, ancient as well as modern. Most importantly, my testimony of Jesus Christ. He is not just the good shepherd, but the best one. He is the bread of life, and he provides himself for our sustenance. He is the Reuben and the Judah and the Simeon here, willing to take our place. He is our Benjamin, the son at the right hand, willing to bring us down to Egypt and bring us back out of it to the promised land. If your faith is faltering or your testimony has grown weak, turn to the Lord and have it strengthened so that the day may come where you can say, as did Joseph, I am sure of these things.